This is Jocko Podcast number 34 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And tonight we have a guest on the podcast back for a second time, my brother Leif Babin. Good evening, Leif. Good evening. Good to be back with you. And if you don't know who Leif Babin is, real easy thing to do is go back to Jocko Podcast number 11 and listen to that. I give him a long introduction and tell you about who he is. Guy that I served in the SEAL teams with. And like I said, go back to 11. I think you guys wrote a book, yeah. We wrote a little book called Extreme Ownership. I'm sure we'll talk about that tonight. Leif was one of the platoon commanders that, that worked for me in the Battle of Ramadi when we deployed in 2006. And just one of my brothers. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Again, thanks Leif. for having me. What do you say to a man that by his own admission has no soul? Why would you say anything? I've thought about it a good deal. But he wasn't nothing compared to what was coming down the pike. They say the eyes are the windows to the soul. I don't know what them eyes was windows to, and I guess I'd as soon not know. But there is another view of the world out there, and other eyes to see it, and that's where this is going. It has done brought me to a place in my life I would not have thought I'd have come to. Somewhere out there is a true and living prophet of destruction. And I don't want to confront him. I know he's real. I've seen his work. I walked in front of those eyes once. I won't do it again. I won't push my chips forward and stand up and go out to meet him. It ain't just being older. I wish that it was. I can't say that it's even what you are willing to do. Because I always knew that you had to be willing to die to even do this job. That was always true. Not to sound glorious about it or nothing. But you do. And if you ain't, they'll know it. They'll see it in a heartbeat. I think it is more like what are you are willing to become. And I think a man would have to put his soul at hazard. And I won't do that. I think now that maybe I never would. Now that's the opening from the book No Country for Old Men, which is written by Cormac McCarthy, who also wrote my favorite non-military memoir book, the book Blood Meridian, which is just an outstanding book. And No Country for Old Men was actually made into an outstanding movie as well. 
which almost follows the book word for word. It's it's an awesome movie. And in the in the movie and in the book, there's a there's a guy, and that's who's talking in that opening, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. And he's explaining that he's seen evil in the world, the living prophet of destruction, and he's seen his work and walked in front of those eyes. And ultimately, and that's kind of what the book is about, Sheriff Bell is explaining that he doesn't really want to face this evil. He doesn't want to put his soul at hazard. So, ultimately, he doesn't really want to be a sheriff anymore. He can't face that kind of evil, so he leaves the, the, the police and he retires and stays in his own little world. And that's that's the basis of it. And it, There's way more to it than that, and you should definitely read the book. Uh, the book, which is, it's set, I think it's set in about the 1980s, early, early 1980s, and the evil that he's speaking of, that he's having to now deal with as a, as a sheriff is the drug car- cartels coming out of Mexico, the border of Texas. They've escalated from, you know, petty little drug dealers back in the day, and now it's a ruthless, organized crime syndicates that murder with no mercy. And like I said, it's just too much for Sheriff Bell, and he ends up walking away. Now, meanwhile... In 2016, the evil that we deal with now is even more pervasive and stronger and completely without mercy, and it's everywhere. And we can try and ignore it, and we can try and act like it doesn't happen, but there's some things that you cannot ignore, and in this case... It's something that we cannot walk away from. In late July of 2016, Father Jacques Hamel, an 86-year-old Catholic priest, was doing what he did every Sunday. Conducting Mass for his parish in Normandy, France. Obviously, the site of D-Day where one of the most impactful operations in history in terms of protecting freedom and liberty took place. And there in Normandy, France, in this church, two young men, and I use that term loosely, burst into the mass brandishing fake guns, fake explosives, but real knives. And the fake guns and the fake bombs apparently allowed them to get control of the people in the church, including Father Hamill. They forced him to his knees in front of his parishioners and they slit his throat. And in fact, they slit his throat with such force that the reports came back and said that they beheaded him. And one of the survivors, who was a nun, said that the attackers who claimed loyalty to the Islamic State smiled and appeared to be happy as they slit the priest's throat. And then these two savages attempted to use some of the nuns from the church as human shields to try and escape. And when they did try and escape, fortunately, there were some French 
police snipers that shot and killed him. But obviously the damage was already done. One priest slaughtered. One of the nuns was wounded. And obviously peace and serenity destroyed. And that is pure evil. And that's the same evil that slaughtered 89 innocent people at the Bataclan Theater in Paris. The same evil that murdered 12 cartoonists at Charlie Hebdo. The same evil that led an Islamic extremist to murder 49 people at a nightclub in Florida. The same evil that brought down the Twin Towers and hit the Pentagon and has caused death and mayhem and destruction all over the world. And unlike Sheriff Ed Tom Bell in the book No Country for Old Men, we can't just walk away from this evil because this evil is everywhere. And I regret to tell you that it's growing and it's going to continue to grow unless we, we, the civilized people of the world, do something to stop it. And of course, with Leif and I background, you know, uh, both of us spent a lot of time in the SEAL teams, deployed multiple times overseas to confront this evil enemy. And of course, we get a lot of questions about our take on this. And to open up the questions for tonight, first question is here. Is the darkness taking hold? Or do you and Leif see the way out of another war? What can we do to prevent lone wolf attacks from happening in Europe and America? Leif, thanks for coming on. I know this is uh, obviously something both of us think a lot about. And I know a lot of people are, are wanting to hear what we think about it. So... Is the darkness taking hold, my brother? There's no doubt that there is some serious darkness in the world. And uh, and I think that darkness, we've seen it grow. We've seen it grow. We've seen the number of uh, jihadi terrorist attacks across the world grow substantially over the years. Uh, and statistically, that's just a fact. And, uh, and I think uh, it's something that I, I think people need to understand, you know, across America, across the, the world, People need to understand just how evil this enemy is. We talk about darkness. We talk about evil. And, you know, I think that No Country for Old Men summary, that that, uh, that intro really uh, really captures it uh, in a way. And certainly we've seen that with, with you know, drug cartels, some of the horrific things that were going on uh, in northern Mexico or even across the border, you know, in, in the United States. But this, this Islamic enemy in particular is, in my opinion, as evil an enemy as the U.S. military has ever faced in our long history. And I'm very well aware 
of the horrific evils of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan. Uh, and I think this threat is, uh, is every bit or even more evil than, than that. It is, uh, it is something that we're seeing, as you just described from that one attack. That's one example of hundreds of hundreds that you could use uh, over the last uh, year or two alone. Yeah, and a good point on that is we hear about the attacks that pl- take place in the Western world, right? That's what we hear about. If, we, if you start diving into the, the butchery and the slaughter and the torture and the rape that happens in their world, in the Islamic world, in the Middle East, and again, you and I that have been there, we know for a fact that the majority of people do not want to live under that reign of terror. No doubt. They want to have normal lives. And, and, and I say this all the time. I know you say this all the time. They want to have normal lives lives and they are being brought down and driven by this this i mean evil is is it's like i want a stronger word i don't know what stronger word there is but this is like this is a this is a personification of satan that's what this is so and i know that's one of the things that struck me and and as we were talking that made me think of No Country for Old Men, because when he says, I know he's real, I've seen his work, and, and I know both of us have, we know he's real. And anybody that's deployed overseas sees and seen what these people can do is, it knows that this is real. Now, the, the other part of this question, Leif, was what can we do to prevent these lone wolf attacks? So, so what do you? What's your what's your thoughts on lone wolf attacks? Well, I think first of all, the lone wolf attack is a myth. It's an absolute myth, and you know this idea that there is these people are just randomly. You know, we, we use we also use the term along with lone wolf. They use the term self radicalization. You hear that all the time. Self, he's self radicalized. You know, he was a normal kid. Everything was great, and all of a sudden he. Uh, followed a Twitter feed from ISIS and decided to go out and kill people. And uh, in no case are we seeing that. We're seeing that to be true. And I think we're, we're discounting that this is this is an ideology. It comes out of uh, out of the the radical Islamic jihadi movement. Uh, and there's a Sunni component of that. There's a Shiite component of that. But there is uh, there are a lot of followers of this. And there are folks that you know when we're the Orlando shooter is a great example. We have uh, someone with like, oh, he was self-radicalized. And the reality was, I mean, you, you could go back and, and, and track the, the, the guy's father uh, and, and see that his, he had pro-Taliban posts on uh, his YouTube channel. And, and uh, he's, he's anti-American, uh, pro-jihadi. He learned this in his home. And the fact that, that uh, the Orlando shooter also happened to go to the very same mosque where the only known American-born suicide bomber attended and, and went to the same mosque as well. A guy who traveled to Syria, joined up with ISIS, and blew himself up, an American citizen. And they both went to the same mosque in Fort Pierce, Florida. So uh, where is this coming from? It's coming from ideology. And we, we, have to, we have to recognize that that's a fact. You know, so many people want to bury their head in the sand and say, you know, Islam's a religion of peace. This has nothing to do with Islam. It has everything to do with Islam, obviously. And as you said, of course, most of the Islamic world doesn't want to live under this brutal reign of terror. And we're abandoning those people 
uh, to to the likes of of the Islamic State uh, and, and that that reign of terror if we don't stand up and we don't do anything. And so we have to recognize that threat. It is it is an ideology that pushes that threat, and it is not lone wolf. These, they're connected by that ideology across the world, and and that inspires people to join up. And I think, you know, back to the that ties us back to the the, the first question about is the darkness spreading? There's always darkness in the world. There's always been evil in the world. What keeps that darkness at bay? You can go back to the, the Pax Romana and, and talk about peace in the, in the ancient world and how it was imposed through strong military might. And it's no different today. We have enjoyed the, 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 the relative peace of post-World War II uh, because we had the strongest, most dominant military in the world. And so uh, we keep that darkness at bay. That wouldn't have been the case if, if the United States and, and our allies had not won World War II. The darkness would have uh, would have taken over the world or, or much of the world. So uh, only through military power, peace through strength, can we ensure uh, that there's light in the world, that the darkness does not take over, that we keep that in check. And, uh, and I think people need to understand that uh, uh, this can this is an enemy that can be defeated, that this darkness is spreading only because we are allowing it to spread only because uh, it is metastasized only because we have not gone and rooted it out. And so, so many Americans, uh, I know they asked you just like they asked me, you know, years ago when we saw ISIS taking over uh, parts of Syria, then coming back into Iraq and, and establishing a foothold there, uh, taking over huge cities like Mosul uh, and Fallujah and then Ramadi uh, before they were, they were pushed out. Uh, it's, people ask, well, why do we really care about that? Why does it matter? And I think now as we're starting to see the kind of horrific attacks that are inspired by their so-called caliphate, that that real estate absolutely matters. It matters to us, and it inspires that they can inspire attacks here among us. And you know, we always try to connect it back. People always say, well, we don't know if it was related to ISIS. And if Abu Bakr Baghdadi, the, you know, the, the, the Islamic, head of the Islamic State, had given them direction, that doesn't matter. None of that matters. The fact is that they're able to inspire attacks where people here amongst us in America and Western Europe and, and, and across the, the world go out and kill innocent people uh, and declare their allegiance. And so we have to go there and we have to destroy them. And it is, it is worth the effort for us. And we have a military that is eager and is ready to do that. And they are itching to make it happen because they understand the nature of this evil. Just like me and you, they've faced it. They've seen it. And, uh, you know, as we talk to our, our buddies who have spent time there or there now, uh, they're frustrated and they want, they want to close with and destroy this enemy. And yet uh, um, there's a lot of pro- political strings holding them back from doing so. And I think that's something that uh, it simply requires leaders who understand the nature of this threat and understand that there is a military solution to this. And we have to lead that fight. America has to lead that fight. And, uh, and I think we can absolutely do that. And we can have tremendous impact in the world and make sure that people don't want to join the losing team because the Islamic State is getting hammered and people are dying in large numbers. And uh, they don't want to go over there and be a part of that. They don't want to join up with the losing side. we got to make sure that that's clear to everybody in the world that um, if they want to be on the side of, of the radical Islamic jihadis, uh, they're going to die a bloody and nasty death. One of the things that you, you mentioned real quick, and we, we were kind of going off, um, was was the fact that these people are normal people. And one of the things that you and I heard, so so for those of you who don't know, Leif and I fought with the 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division in the Battle of Ramadi in the summer of 2006, where the, the, the city of Ramadi was taken back from insurgents. And 
when we did that, it was a very tough fight, very fierce fight, and we were able to get that city turned around and turned back over to the citizens of Ramadi. And it turned into a flourishing city. It was very peaceful for seven years. And when ISIS then took it over, took it back, they, and, and again, this is what, what Leif and I were told by people that we knew that were on the ground over there, ISIS came in and murdered. They had a list of about 500 families, and they went in and murdered every person in the family. These were This was a list of family, families of whom someone in the family had worked with the coalition forces, worked with the Iraqi government, been against you know this form of radical Islam. So ISIS came in and murdered 500 families, which to me, it, it should tell everybody out there that this is an enemy that we must address, we must face, and we must destroy. I, was, I think what people don't understand either is that those same people who were on that, that list that ISIS brought in, they were screaming and begging for our help. They wanted American troops on the ground to help them. They don't want to live under that brutal reign of terror. They want us there. They want us to be able to push, push that enemy back and give them the chance to live their lives in relative freedom and peace and security. Yeah, there's a great, there's a great video on, on Vice News that shows prior to ISIS coming back in Ramadi, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to watch. It'd be difficult for you to watch too because it's exactly it's showing exactly what you're saying. They're going around, they're interviewing people and the guy that's doing the interviews is he's some kind of an, I think he's an Iraqi American because he speaks Arabic and he's, he's conversing with people and they're showing subtitles. But, Everybody he's talking to, he's saying, well, what are you, what are you going to do? It looks like ISIS is coming. And they're saying, we, we want the Americans back. We want them to come here. We want them to help us. Then they got the governor of Ramadi, and they're, they show him on the phone. And he's talking to his, his, whoever his superiors, and he's saying, we need the Americans out here. They're getting too close. The ISIS is getting too close. We need American support. We need them. And that's, that's the thing that so many people miss in America is the fact that the normal people in these countries – they do not want to live under this kind of regime, and they. But they are. It's hard for them to defend themselves against it, and so that's where America, the benevolent nation that we are, can provide this sort of peace and stability there. And it's going to be hard. And I say this all the time, right? If you're going to go to war, people are going to die. Americans are going to die. Innocent civilians are going to die. But look at what the alternative is. The alternative is you have this disgusting, despicable ideology getting a foothold in the world and it is absolutely disgusting and it should not be stood for. And I think people need to understand too, when we're talking about destroying the Islamic caliphate as they as they call themselves, and how that real estate alone, them owning that real estate inspires those attacks, it doesn't take in, in giant ground invasions with hundreds of thousands of troops in order in order to defeat this enemy. It it takes a few thousand American troops. Uh, to, to go and, and generate momentum to beat them back, partner with folks on the ground like like uh, Anbari Sheikhs that we, we worked with back in the day and U.S. forces worked with for the Anbar Awakening, and they're, they're asking for our help. We need to partner with folks like the, the, the president of Egypt and, and the, king, the king of Jordan who have talked about how this is a civil war within Islam, and uh, they don't, they don't want to 
subscribe to that uh, or live under that kind of brutal reign. They they want to lead the fight against it. We got to help them. We got to support them. You know, we need to team up with folks like that. It is uh, we must do it. And if if we don't do it, you're going to see the darkness continue to spread until we actually do something about it. So many people want to say, well, let's let others over there lead the fight. Uh, that's kind of like Winston Churchill saying, you know what. Uh, the Nazis are in Czechoslovakia and France. That's 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 their problem. Mm-hmm. Where are they coming next? Exactly. All right. That's the Islamic State for you, folks. Move on to the next question here. Jocko and Leif, how do you know if you terminated too early? I wanted to remove the toxicity before it damaged the team. When do you know it's time to fire someone? So we'll get into a, a little little change in pace here, going from the darkness of the Islamic State into something a lot more positive, which is people running businesses. And it's good you clarify that because terminated has a different context <laughs> yeah, in our I'd previous topic. Check. So this is a good question, and, it, and it's something we hear a lot. And we got a ton of questions when I put this out. So when do you know it's time to fire somebody? We get this question all the time, as you just said, and it's this was always the most difficult thing. It, it is incredibly difficult, even for you know people who feel like they're super super tough leaders uh, or strong leaders in the SEAL teams who've been through all our training and and uh, and have proven themselves on the battlefield. It's hard to fire people. It's always difficult to fire people. It's hard to have those tough conversations with folks, and so. Uh, we've t- we talk about this that the right time to fire somebody is when you don't feel bad about it. And what I mean by that, I don't mean just because you're cold-blooded, but that you actually uh, but that you, you actually have taken every step to mentor and train and provide resources and, and uh, help that person achieve the performance that you need them to achieve in order to accomplish the mission. And you've given them every chance to succeed. And once you... you you should feel absolutely confident that you 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 have exhausted all options, and then you sh- you're not going to feel bad about it because you've, you've you've taken so much time and effort, and they shouldn't even they sh- they're not even going to be upset about it. Not that they may necessarily love you or thank you for firing them, but so often you see people that are literally relieved when we work with companies and we see this happen. We see people that are relieved because they're in a position where they just they're overwhelmed. There's massive pressure on them. And they knew they were, it, was, it was beyond their capability, and they just didn't want to say, I can't do this. And so when they got either fired or just transitioned to a different role, it was re- they were relieved. And they said, thank you. And like, it really was, that was really eating at me, that I, I didn't feel capable, and I, didn't feel, I knew I was letting the team down. Uh, and that's almost always the case. Every once in a while, you get the tortured genius who just can't take direction or won't listen, um, who's never going to see, never gonna, you know, see that eye to eye. But that, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, the, the the only other thing I'd say is laying out the real crystal clear expectations of where you need to be. Hey, if this is where you this is where you need to be, and if you don't get there, this is what's going to happen. And that's why you said it shouldn't be a surprise. It should be, hey, I knew exactly what the expectations were. I knew exactly what was required of me, and I knew exactly what was going to happen if I didn't meet those expectations or requirements. So that's how you know. And the only other thing is. We sometimes, and it's totally normal, we build a relationship with our people. And so sometimes that relationship gets strong to the point where you might value that 
relationship more than you value the performance of the team. And that is not a good situation because you have to look out for the whole team. And if I say, oh, this guy's not doing his job, but he's my bro, so I'm going to keep him on, I'm letting down the whole team. So that's just another little element that you have to pay attention to. And if you truly care about the person, mentor them, coach them, put them into a position where they can succeed. Sometimes people aren't good at something. And you got to move them to a spot where they can. You can take advantage of their strengths instead of putting them in a spot where their weaknesses are going to be totally exposed. That's how you take care of someone. So that's what you got to do before you fire somebody. One thing, too, that I learned from you in, in, in the Navy uh, during our time was when you have those tough conversations, you got to write it down. You have to write it down. And that's something that uh, I, I thought was very powerful because so often, even in the SEAL teams, you'd see leaders who would say, well, this leader screwed up, you know, this platoon commander or this chief's got an issue and we need to, he's causing the, you know, he's dangerous or he's making bad decisions or he's unprofessional or uh, he's, you know, he's, he's not getting his unit where, where they need to be and, and, and we need to call him in and tighten him up. And you'd have that conversation behind closed doors. When the, the person isn't present and you're like, right on, let's call them in. Let's tighten them up. You come in, they sit down and here you are face to face with that person. And you just had that closed door conversation about how terrible they were and how they really needed, you know, we're going to, we're going to square them away. And now face to face, the conversation goes like this. Well, you're doing, you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> you're doing a pretty good job overall. There's a couple things we need to work on here or there, but you know, maybe not here. And, uh, I, I think that's, uh, that that doesn't help anybody. That's the false cheerleading is a disaster, and um, it's something that we talk about all the time in our business. I'm sure you've mentioned that on, on the podcast, uh, you know, many times before. But uh, when you write it down, you have it in front of you, so you have to have that tough conversation, and you give them a copy so they have it with them as well, and then they can take that and understand where they need to be and when they need to be there, and uh, and that forces you to have those tough conversations. It's uh, it's it's absolutely a game changer. Uh, and makes you makes you address that. And then, again, the false cheerleading is a disaster. People, then when you have to fire someone and they're like, wait, you just said I was doing a good job. So obviously you failed as a leader. And another another good thing you can do to soften the blow of this stuff when you're when you're delivering the heavy news is you're saying, listen, I wrote this down. I, I'm putting this in front of you. Why am I doing that? Because I think you can do it. I want you to do it. I'm investing in you. This is not my way to, to make you feel bad. This is my way to make you get better. Mm-hmm. I want you to do better. So here's what I, here's what you got to do for me. Here it is in plain English. Do you understand this bullet point? Do you understand this bullet point? Do you understand this bullet point? That's the best possible thing you can do. And, and you got to make that they, them understand that. Because otherwise they'll walk out of the room saying, oh, he's picking on me. He doesn't like me. No, 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 no. The opposite is true. If I didn't like you, I would just fire you. I want you to perform. I'm mentoring you. I'm coaching you because I want you to do better. I'm giving you this list so you know exactly what you have to do to win. So don't take it the wrong way, my brother. Just get in the game and get this stuff done. Hey, do you think... Because I remember you saying this... Good evening, Echo. Good evening. <laughs> I remember you saying this to, to Jade. Remember, you were like, you were like when you don't feel... Ba- I don't know if you put in those exact words, right. but that's basically the message, exactly what they said. When right. you don't feel bad about it, you guys both know. Yep. You know? Yep. Do do you think that there's a difference between like the SEAL teams, for example, because you can't just, well, I'm assuming you can't just replace the guy. So it's like it, it's the, worth it to invest as much as you possibly can. The in civilian them. world and the SEAL teams, I thought this would be different. They're not different. They're the same. So yeah. in the civilian world, every company we go work with, doesn't matter what the company is, 
there, there's no immediate replacement for somebody that knows a skill set for a software engineer. Is there a great guy waiting to come in the door? No. Is there a great welder waiting to come in the door? No. Is there just no matter what these things are? There's not a perfect replacement coming for it. It's the same thing in the SEAL teams. You don't have a ready replacement ready to come in. Mm. So, of course, you've got a person. You've gone through the agony of finding them. You've gone through the agony of recruiting them. You've gone through the agony of bringing them on board, issuing them their gear, getting them their computer, letting them understand the, the, the culture of the company. I've done, I've inv- you've already invested so much. You don't want to just fire the person. You want them to work out. And so that's right. why it's important on either military and civilian. You got to, you've made those investments. The, the best outcome is to have them succeed. That's mm-hmm. always the best outcome. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you've got to be a great mentor, a great coach, a great leader. And I've talked about this before. I'm not going to go into it right now. But some people are allergic to the words mentor. And some people are allergic to the word coach. Mm-hmm. You get someone with an ego problem. And I go, hey, Leif, welcome to the platoon. I'm going to go ahead and mentor you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't need you to mentor me. So, yeah. so, so there's a lot of people that, that, that they think, you know, that offends them. Yeah. Because that implies, I've said this before, that implies that I know more than you do and you know less right. than me. Yeah. And I'm the big guy that's going to help you, little guy. Yeah. So, so sometimes that direct kind of coaching is not the right answer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, clearly when you're getting to a point where somebody's getting fired, you, you need to do some direct coaching. Yeah. So that's why we're right now, we're getting it done correctly. And one one more point on that, which is a, a great uh, a great question, Echo. But it, it's that's the easiest I think fallback, and we see that with a lot of leaders. I've seen we saw it in the military, and we see it throughout you know companies and, and organizations that we work with now. Oftentimes, it's people that well, this person isn't good enough. I need to fire them and get someone else. And, and, and almost most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, it's they just need to be led. They need to be led. They need to have the mission better explained to them. They need to have, you know, the training. They need to have better resources. They need to have mentorship, uh, just as Jock was talking about. And so it, that's that's an easy fallback, but it's it's not, it's an excuse, and it's the opposite of extreme ownership. And really, only the case of that tortured genius, right? That that, that we wrote about the the person that just cannot take any direction, no matter how uh, how valid uh, or are uh, positive. Uh, and needed, or they can't take any criticism. They won't set, accept any responsibility. They, they have it all figured out. The world just can't see the genius and what they do. Right. You know, that's kind of how they look at things. That's the only time that you really have to fire those those folks generally. Yeah, the, and the the thing you didn't say, you hit like four points. You want to one of the best places to start if someone's not doing what they're supposed to be doing is explain to them why they're doing it. What this is why I want you to do this. Because then they can absorb it. They understand what the deep mission is. They understand kind of the commander's intent. So whenever someone's not doing this, and I, I you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and break out a story right now. Good, do it. <laughs> so I got a seven-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. She can't ride her bike yet. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not good. You should be riding a bike at four. Right? In my family, <laughs> it's four. So she can't ride a bike yet. Why not two? <laughs> so, I, and she's, and it's become a thing. It's become an issue. Right? So... The other day, and we're going on a big camping trip, and it's going to be necessity to be able to ride the bike. So the other day, I started telling her, okay, we got to go work on your bike riding. So I'm like, come, get your shoes on, get ready to ride. And she immediately goes defensive. I don't know. I don't want to ride a bike. I can't ride a bike. I'm not good at riding. And I started getting right, you know, no, listen, get your shoes on. I went that route like an idiot. And I luckily, I didn't go too far down that road. And I just stopped myself after two direct orders with no explanation of why. And I said, hey, sweetie. We're going to go work on your bike ride. Let me tell you why. Because when we go camping, almost everywhere we're going to be going is going to be on the bike, especially when it's time to bike ride to go get ice cream. 
We're going to have to ride bikes to get ice cream. And and so all I want to make sure is that you're able to come with us when we go to get ice cream. Yep. I mean, I don't want to have to bring it back for you. I want you to come with us. Yep. And you could see, you know, I just completely t- changed attack. And she was said, you know, okay, let, let me get my shoes on. And, and literally, that's an example with a seven-year-old, right? Yep. And uh, first of all, the first note there is that I, Mr. Big Leadership Expert, completely went down the wrong road. And was like, listen to me because I'm the father and I know you do what I tell you. It's the wrong approach 100% of the time, even the seven-year-old. Mm. And as soon as I went back and said, hey, here's why I want you. And, you know, I told her a bunch of other things. That, you know, it's really good. This is how we're going to get around. This is how you can get around the beach. All these things. And changed her attitude. It literally changed her attitude in a minute. I wish I would have videotaped the whole thing because mm. we could have posted it. Yep. Yeah, that would have been a good little case study. Yeah. Right. Flank yeah. through with the ice cream money. The would you say back to the the hi, the hiring and people you know you don't have just someone waiting in the wings to get hired to to fill that position remember um I, that kind of is the case huh most of the time where if you fire someone it's like oh we'll just replace them yeah. right all that work and stuff you got to rehire somebody Ben that you're wasting time and resources to do that and you could just be investing more you in that kind always want your your team to succeed. Yeah. And sometimes people take that too far. We, you, you get someone that just wants the team to succeed why they're not going to fire somebody. So there's always a balance. There's always a yeah, dichotomy yeah. there. But yes, that is true. So do you make the exception if, let's say, you know, let's say, hey, I'm, I, I I hired this, I don't know. You weigh it. You weigh yeah. the pros so and So if you do have a guy kind of waiting in the wings, I don't know, my neighbor, yeah, you know, of course. hey, you he's waiting in the wings, so you're going to invest less in this guy because we got this guy ready to go. Well, no, you, you, you won't invest less. You're not going to invest anything. If you've got someone that's going to come in and do the job and this person can't make it happen and has failed, right, uh, currently. get rid of them. Yeah. Check. There you go. Good times. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Jocko and Leif, explain how you first met and worked together. And then the second part is how do you say stay so disciplined every day? So Leif... Meeting Jocko. Good times. How was that? How's that? <laughs> uh, we touched on this a little bit in, pod, in uh, podcast uh, 11, but uh, it was a uh, it was a good time. I checked into I checked into SEAL Team 3 back in the, the spring of 2005, and uh, I was taken over as the platoon commander for Charter Platoon, and I see I see the uh, I see the name on the board Jocko. And I already kind of heard his name around. People kind of knew who he was, and but I didn't. I didn't know much. I didn't know much about Jocko. I was like, but our chief Tony, who we've also talked about, who was just a complete badass, amazing warrior, incredible combat leader, and uh, he he said, "Hey, Jocko's good to go." He's like, "Jocko's who you want." I was like, "Right on." I'm looking forward to meeting Jocko. And at this time, Jocko was the admiral's aide, so I think you were you were still busy, kind of running yeah. around and, and yeah. trying to turn over those duties there. Uh, very busy job, difficult job, um, but uh, but an important job certainly. And uh, so when Jocko finally showed up to the team, the first time I remember seeing him was it was it we had a morning formation, so we all we all go to you know our, our morning meeting and then we we stand in formation out back uh, of the team, and uh, everyone musters up and and uh, I just remember looking at Jocko and he had zero smile on his face, just a scowl, no smile whatsoever. In fact, I don't think you smile for the first two months. Yeah, I have, a, I have a two-month two moratorium when I meet people for smiling. And, and so, <laughs> yeah. 
he just came up to us and he just looked at us and said, I'm Jocko. <laughs> and just staring through us like he wanted to murder us and, and, and you know, shaking our hand. It was me and then our other, uh, the, the other Delta, platoon, the commander, Delta platoon commander. The Delta platoon and, uh, and we, we knew each other well, me and the Delta platoon commander. And, you know, we were, we were like looking at each other and he's like, <laughs> he looks at me, he's like, Jocko hates me. I can already tell it. Yeah. <laughs> Jocko hates everybody. Yeah. But what I didn't realize later until after we worked together, he gave me a copy of the book about face, which we've talked about many, you know, you've talked about many times on, on the podcast. Um, and it's a, a tremendously influential book. I know on you, certainly on me and on our entire generation about face by uh, Colonel D- David Hackworth. Uh, I realized that that's what he did when he checked in and took over uh, his unit, which he renamed the hardcore and, uh, and actually, uh, he said, I didn't smile at anybody for several, it was six weeks or something like the first, first, uh, couple months he was there. I like to be a little like, bit oh. harder than Hackworth, so I go two months. <laughs> Wait, did you get it from Hackworth or was that, you know, that was I, your I thing? I don't anyway. remember. I probably did. I ripped off so much stuff from Hackworth. I definitely ripped off, like, we, we, we renamed the, the task unit, which was called Bravo. We re- renamed it Bruiser. That right. complete rip off from Hackworth. So, but I, but you, I, you I know always, what? It worked. It yeah, worked. Yeah. I always have, uh, have, I mean, I'm, when you meet me, I'm going to be standoffish. I'm not. I'm not a big. You know, I don't open. I'm, I'm just not generally like yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say you did me like that. Yeah, real cool. <laughs> All that. He probably didn't smile for the first two years that he knew you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The tough. The tough thing yeah. is though, is when you take over a position like that in the SEAL teams and, and Leif, you know this. You don't know who you're getting. You don't know anything about them. You have guys that you are gonna have to put trust and faith in. To, to lead guys in combat, and it's it's a very that's the way I saw it, and and I knew that with you guys, you guys were the platoon commanders. You guys were going to be on the battlefield every day. You guys were going to be leading guys in combat. The most there was going to be so much pressure on you guys. There was going to be violence. There was going to be war, and so I wanted to, and and there was a chance you were going to get fired. You know, I didn't want to be friends with you yet. I wanted to make sure you made it through certain wickets. And then, obviously, the more I got to know you, and actually, there was, at this time, you know, I wasn't, um, I guess the word is, I wasn't as mature as I am right now. So, I was talking to one of the one of the senior officers at the team, and they were thinking about maybe switching guys around or moving the platoons around. And now, this at this point, you guys had, I had gotten to know you guys, you and the Delta Platoon Commander, and realized that you guys were exactly who I wanted to be with me in combat. Exactly the type of guys that I knew would never back down, would go forward, and would kick ass. And I knew that. But this guy says to me, he says, hey, you know, we're thinking about maybe moving some of the platoon commanders or blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, no I, the two guys I got are the two guys I'm keeping. And they're like, well, you know, do they have the qualities that you want, you know, for a, and I said, they have the two qualities. He said the qualities. I said, I only need two qualities. They need to be able to listen, which means they're humble and they need to be tough. And that's what those guys are. Cause I dished out all kinds of crap on these guys and, and they we, always just took it. We wouldn't have lasted long because, uh, <laughs> yeah. we were all training jujitsu at zero five hundred every morning. <laughs> yeah. That's how we roll. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it, we had an awesome task unit and, you know, Jocko, uh, mentored and trained us and I'm sure he was frustrated with our performance initially because he had a lot more experience than, than, than me or Delta Platoon commander and, and yet he spent the time to, 
train and mentor us and get us to where we needed to be. And by the time we deployed, you know, to the battlefield in Ramadi, he unleashed us on the battlefield to lead our platoons. And, and even, uh, un, you know, underneath us, within the platoon, our, our assistant platoon commanders and our platoon chief and our leading petty officer, I mean, our senior leaders within that, they were out leading their own elements on the battlefield. And so uh, he, he had to have tremendous faith and trust in those guys, and, and we, we certainly built that. And, and it was all certainly due to Jocko's leadership, to you, Bruiser, thanks to uh, Colonel David Hackworth. Yeah, and, and, you know, everybody should know that it's Leif and I are, are the mouthpieces right now for a bunch of badass guys that all stepped up. And when we were going through training, crushing it, when we went overseas, crushed it, we're, we're too – Two two people from a from a big unit, and all those guys, you know, were just getting after it. And we put we put them all. You know, we didn't. It's, you know, we were just talking about firing people. We fired people from Task Unit Bruiser that didn't didn't make the cut. Mm. And we tried. We did the things we were supposed to do. We mentored them. We helped them along. And at the end of the day, they weren't ready. And so we got rid of them. So when we went overseas, we were uh, we were ready to rock. And we roll knew we could counter everybody. Yep. No doubt. Yep. And that's, I think that's something that people, you know, miss. And we talk about that all the time that, you know, the, what makes a team, the biggest lesson we brought back from Ramadi was that leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. Leaders at every level. And so, you know, why we had an extraordinary task unit was because we had those leaders at every level that stepped up. Not just me, not just Jocko, our, our squad leaders in charge of eight guys, our fire team leaders in charge of four guys, the two-man shooter pair down to the frontline trooper who just stepped up owned his piece of the mission and, and led and got after it. Yeah. And you, when you think about, actually, as I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, because I really haven't thought about this too much, about the process of going from, I don't know these two guys, I don't trust these two guys. That's the main piece of it, right? I don't trust these two guys because I don't know them. Mm-hmm. And so how do you build that trust? And uh, and somebody asked me that the other day, and, and it just it's a really good point of how do you build trust with people. And a re- the best way, I think, to build trust is to give trust. So I said, you know, I'd look at Leif and say, hey, you run this operation. You know, this, you run this training operation. I trust that you can do it. Now, when I give him that trust, he's looking at me, thinking to himself, hey, this guy trusts me. This guy. So So we're building the trust. Whereas if I say, Leif, I'll run this. You just you just follow me. You just get in the back seat. You just right. step aside. I that's where you, we're not building trust. And if we went on deployment, if I had acted like that whole deployment, we got deployment, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have had built any trust. And I'll tell you one more thing. As I was sitting here thinking, we did everything together. I mean, no doubt. We ate dinner. We worked out. We did jujitsu. This was you, me, the the other platoon command, the other Delta platoon, the Delta platoon commander. We did everything together. I mean, you guys lived together, it, and, and we all lived in the same neighborhood. We surfed together. We lifted together. Everything was together. We debriefed together, and that is how you get this bond and this massive amount of trust where I look at you and know I don't have to say a word. You know the deal. I know the deal, and we go forward. One thing I was just thinking about, too, is uh, this is something that I think, I think brought, you brought to the table. I mean, as you were – you know, training us and mentoring us and spending time with us to, and building building that trust as as we were going through all this training to get ready for combat deployment. You know, if you come in and say you talked about before, like I'm I'm going to coach you, I'm going to mentor you. Obviously, that makes people like. Well, when when you actually say, you know, when you said to me like, life, you got this," or like, "Hey, 
run this. And then I'm put in a situation where I know Jocko's got a bunch of experience in this, you know, this, this particular direct action, you know, raids. He just come back from Iraq and had a bunch of experience. I didn't have any experience in that. I'd let a few sniper operations, uh, you know, but that was it. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't done any, you know, direct action, uh, raids like that. So, uh, here, here we are getting, getting, I'm getting thrust into it. I'm in charge. I got to make some calls. It's humbling. So what does that make me do? It makes me be like, Hey, Jocko, what do you think about this? Hey, what, you know, here's kind of what I'm thinking here. What do you think? So it, it opens up the conversation of like, Hey, uh, I'm looking for mentorship. I'm looking for training rather mm-hmm. than I got it all figured out. So even had I thought that initially, you know, at that point when you don't have experience, you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah. So when you, when you put people in a situation that they're, it's beyond their comfort zone, it's outside of, you know, their real knowledge base. Then they look often they're looking to you for help. They're looking to you for guidance. And that's a good point. And actually somebody, somebody point, we were working with a company the other day on the East coast and we were going through something and, 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 and we were, de- you were describing me quote unquote mentoring you. And again, I hate to use that word, but, but when you described it, you said, Hey, Jocko asked me this and then he asked me this and then he asked me this. And what I was doing was saying, hey, Leif, why are you doing that right there? And Leif said, well, this is what I thought. And I said, okay, well, what would you do then if this happened? And Leif said, oh, that's a good point. And so instead of me saying, Leif, don't do that. Do You do this right here. I didn't do that. I was asking him questions and letting him find the answer. And also, the other point of this, for real, is I wasn't just asking him the question like so that I could guide him down the perfect path i'm legitimately asking him like why are you doing that right there because maybe he's got an idea in his head that that could be positive Mm -hmm. i uh i can i can talk through that example because that was that was in the kill house yeah we're we're working through the kill house and you know for those that don't know who the kill house is you got a uh you've got a rooms and hallways uh in in a building and oftentimes it's ballistic walls so we can shoot live fire in there uh same thing swat teams use or you know any military in the world but it's it, it's you work on your close quarter combat skills or CQC where you you enter doorways and you work you're working together as a team clearing these hall, halls and rooms and moving through a, a, a target building in a training environment and often they can change them and move the move the hallways around or change doorways so you, so it mixes it up every time you can't really get used to you know doing it one way or the other and and uh, and so I'd been told as an officer my job was to stand in the back and just take the report so um, that's what I did. And uh, the report being how many how many people have been shot, how many hostages have been captured, how many seals have been wounded. That's exactly. The report. I've got the little quarterback uh, sleeve on my arm with a grease pencil, and I'm just standing in the back doing that. And jo- the question Jocko asked me was, "Hey, Leif, uh, wh- he literally asked. It, it wasn't condescending. It was, you know, the tone really mattered. And he, he said, well, why, why are you in the back?' And uh, he was very curious about why, why I was in the back. What was the, what was my tactical reasoning for that? And I, I looked at him. I was like, "That's what I was told to do." And someone who had told me that didn't really have any real uh, experience on on a real battlefield had said, "Well, you're an officer. You just stand in the back." And so, uh, so I thought I'm going to aggressively do that. That's what I'm going to do. And that's that's where I was aggressively stand in the back. And I'm a pretty default. I'm a pretty default aggressive leader. And I was like, "Hey, if my job is to stand in the back and take this report, I'm going to do it better than anybody." Watch this. And when Jocko asked me that, he's like, "Well, why are you in the back?" And I was like. Because that's where I thought I was supposed to be. And then he asked me another question. It was, uh, well, do you know what's going on up in the front of the train right now? You know, I've got, I've got 15 guys spread out through, through the building. They're in different rooms and stuff. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on in the train up front. And, and so then the, the follow-on question from him was like, well, how can you 
how can you lead these? How can you lead this team? How can you be the command and control for your team if if you don't know what's going on up front? And I was like, I mean, it was just light bulb moment go off. Like I have to, I have to be in a position where I know where you know where I need to be. And that was, it showed me that I was, I was not only was I wrong in, in where I was, but I, I was failing as a leader and failing my team if I couldn't actually lead them and know what's going on. So the proper position for me was forward somewhere in the middle generally yeah. and i can move around i didn't want to get so far forward that i'm getting sucked into every room clearance or getting in a gunfight you know in the hallway because i got to be able to stand back and see see what's going on but not so far in the back that i don't know what's going on up, up front so uh that he never needed to tell me that again it was uh, i knew where i needed to be i understood that uh, it made sense to me and i think if you want to that's a great example of being able to successfully mentor your people so they understand, you know, to ask them those questions in a way that's meaningful. It's not condescending. It's not, you know, I know everything, uh, you know, why are you doing that? But, uh, or don't do this. But, but actually asking me the questions and I didn't have a legitimate answer. Light bulb goes off. Nobody ever needs to tell me that again. Yeah, I feel like that's <clears throat> like such a critical component, the tone. How you can say the same exact question, mm-hmm. but you say it in all these different tones. So, like, like what were you you know how you like you always say this like what were you thinking there on that thing or that when yeah. that went down as opposed to what were you thinking you know like that kind of thing that's common yeah. what well, were you I, thinking like I, you're so dumb and i think the factor is there is that i recognize i truly recognize that i, I could be learning something and there might be something yeah. i don't see i and i'll tell you what Leif talked about this earlier man combat is humbling and and i've been in situations combat where i did not have control yeah and i did not do good and i look at those situations and i don't know if that's going to happen again in in whatever situation so my mind is not sitting there saying i know everything because i know i don't so when i'm asking those questions i am legitimately asking you the question hey echo why did you what were you thinking when you when you spliced this thing together or what were you thinking when you when you when you posted this thing on that video what's the purpose of that you know and i i actually want to know um so that's why i'm not saying echo why the hell did you post that? You know what I mean? It's yeah. I, I generally I genuinely am not am not overconfident and and don't think I know everything. And yeah. that was that was one of the biggest lessons learned. You know, in addition to this, leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. One of the other big lessons learned was humility. And that you know, at that time, I had deployed to Iraq before, so I was a one platoon wonder, one you know, cruise wonder, exactly, and one you, pump chump. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, and you you really feel that that happens when you have well, I've deployed or I've been overseas and I've done a few combat operations. You get that on your belt, and yet you don't even realize what it feels like to be overwhelmed, to have things that are out of your control, to to have the enemy flank you or do something that you hadn't foreseen. And I think those just sustained combat operations for almost seven months in Ramadi, just day in and day out of intense gun battles, was something that. It was humbling, and I think that was one of the biggest lessons learned. We were able to come back and pass on to others was just, wow! If you think you got it figured out, you haven't really done anything real. Yeah, and the the other thing that happens, and this is this is actually to, to exactly to your point, somebody goes overseas, and they 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 do some combat operations, and they don't get challenged, they don't get tested truly, and it actually falsely increases their confidence. And we see this in the business world too. Like you have an you have a company that came out of the gate and that they just timed things right. They were ahead of the curve and all of a sudden they're doing fantastic and they think they can make no mistakes. And they're not humble. So their success their success actually makes them get arrogant. 
And I, I mean, it's real obvious. I mean, look at Ronda Rousey, right? Ronda Rousey, she thought, hey, I'm good to go. I'm going to beat all these people. And that, that, that arrogance will bite you. And so I, I think we saw that in, in the SEAL teams where guys would go overseas, do, do a quote unquote combat deployment. They'd get some experience, but it wasn't like hardcore sustained combat operations. And so that, that, that actually, it would be a negative. It'd almost be better not to have any experience. Almost. It's probably better to have some experience. But you definitely... So So my point is, whether you're in combat, whether you're going into combat, whether you've been in combat, whether you're in business, whether you're in a sport, just because you've had some success, don't start cutting corners. Don't let. Don't get arrogant. I mean, this is common sense stuff, but we still see it all the time. Yeah, when you're in the mix, you, it's, you just, you're just compelled to do it. Like, I'm winning. Yeah. It's hey, like, it's I like, don't need to train any harder. You know, I don't need training harder. I'm good to go. It's like that guy running the mile. You know, the guy who's running the mile, right? He's beating everyone. He's winning. But then you got the guy who's had some adversity through the four laps, and at the end, he's turning it on. And the guy who ran the mile is like, "Oh, I'm cruising." And the guy passes him. Same you know, thing. I think that's why it's always easy to be the underdog because it's, it's you can just take advantage of. Uh, of of overconfidence, of arrogance, of uh, someone who just doesn't think. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's like what you were saying. Like I'd gone to Iraq. We done we done a bunch of operations, but I'll tell you, in my mind, I, I didn't feel like I had been tested. I knew a lot. I felt like, hey, I, we still got to be. That's why we always thought worst case scenario. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? What's how bad can this get? That's what I was always looking at and still look at. And when I when we were running training, when I was running training, when you were running training, we were always looking at that. What we want I want the training to be harder than combat, you know? So keep your ego in check, people. And we we talk to leaders about that all the time. I just had a conversation with a leader uh not too long ago about uh how he's telling me everything's going good. You know, he's implemented the stuff we talked about. He's he's rock and rolling these principles. His team's going great. I'm like, "Okay, well, where can it go bad? Where can it go bad? You know, where what what did you, what did you miss?" What risk did you, you know, are you not taking the proper steps? What's the worst case scenario that can happen? I think good leaders are going to be doing that all the time. Never going to be satisfied. Always thinking, what, what did I miss? There's always those little butterflies there. And I think when you're, when you're going out on an op and thinking, I got it all figured out, mm-hmm. what bad could possibly happen? We're going to crush the enemy. Watch out. It's, it's going to go bad for you. All right. Moving on to the next question. I'll tell you though, what's easy about being the underdog is that not much is expected out of you. So even if you fail it, everyone's like, whatever, it doesn't throw up any kind of red flag, doesn't move the needle. But when you do good, it moves the needle because no one expects much out of you. Yep, being the underdog is the easier position. Less pressure. Yeah, it can be seen that way, yeah. For sure. (laughs) Next question. Uh, Here we go. Jocko and Leif. Once the crisis started in Benghazi, was a QRF practical? You know, this is something that uh, there's been so much discussion, obviously, with the, the heated uh, political debate, you know, of election season. And uh, a lot's been said about Benghazi. And uh, I think what bothers me so much about that is the answer is yes, of course, a QRF is practical. And a QRF should have been set up and ready to go in the event that this happened. And so... The issue with this is, you know, with Benghazi and why it's a big deal and why it's important is, uh, particularly for those of us in the military, um, is because when U.S. 
military personnel are, are employees of the U.S. government anyway are out in harm's way and they're calling for help. Leaders, real leaders are going to step up and get that help to them and make it happen. And I think, you know, what, uh, whether or not a QRF, which is a, a quick, quick reaction force, uh, we're talking about sending in a, you know, a force, maybe it's Marines, maybe it's soldiers, maybe it's special operations forces. Maybe it's just air support. Maybe it's air support, clo- close air support, uh, which could have gotten there certainly, uh, you know, in a matter of, uh, of hours. Um, it's, those things would, Probably have made a huge difference on that that battlefield. Would it have saved the lives of of Ty Woods, who was our our teammate, and Glenn, Glenn Doherty, another teammate, um, and those uh, the two State Department officials lost their, lost their lives, including the, the ambassador Chris Stevens. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it would have saved saved their lives, and it, no one can say that. But that's not what leaders are asking themselves when they don't know the outcome. I think a, a, a true good leader is gonna is gonna when bad things are happening is going to say, how can we resolve this? How can we help those guys? And I think the, the hard thing when you look at this scenario is from everything that we've seen and understand about what happened in the wake of Benghazi is when the call came in that U.S. forces are under attack, uh, the immediate response was, how can we twist this? How, 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 can we, how can we make this better for us politically? Spin it. How can we spin it? Yeah, exactly. So how can we do that? Well, we Libya had to be... Because that was the, the party line at the time. Lib- Libya had to be a big win. We liberated Lib- Libya. You know, U.S. forces went in, air power, liberated Libya from the you know, evil dictator uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, that has to be a victory force. We can't say that al-Qaeda or terrorist groups have taken over, that the threat level's there. Um, so we have to put a spin on this. So let's, let's – we can't say that th- there's a threat. Let's come up with a story about the video and how the video inflamed uh, – you know, uh, hatred against Americans and and uh, and blame that. And so that was the crisis response. And no one ever said, send every asset we have to help those guys. And, you know, there, there's all this, the, you know, the, the, the paperwork and the, the permissions that are required to enter another country's airspace. Let me tell you something. If someone, if the president if, if at the very top says, get U.S. aircraft there now, they're going to get there now. And what is what is Libya going to do for us? I mean, particularly when they're a nation that's not. I mean, they, they've got kind of a pseudo government at that right. point post, uh, you know, post revolution. So um, it was a, it's a travesty, and I think it's a real stain on a, on American honor that when U.S. troops were in harm's way, calling for help, uh, America did not send help. So a couple things from my perspective. Number one, and, and you kind of touched on this. The preparation was awful. There's all kinds of documents showing that these guys had felt the threat, analyzed the threat, knew the threat was real, and did not get the support that they wanted down there. That's just step number one. So from the beginning, never mind once this, once, once, what was it, was a question, once the crisis started, the crisis shouldn't have started. You should be proactive. You should be aggressive in your contingency planning. You should be aggressive in your security measures. You should be aggressive against a known and quantifiable threat all the time. So so there's number one. There's the first failure. Then the second failure, you already said it. I'm going to tell you what. You got American troops in harm's way. We are going to do everything possible to get there now. And you know what? How long is that crisis going to last? You don't know. 
you don't know how long a crisis is going to last. So if the crisis starts and I know what's going on, I'm sending help. And I'm sending the first the first help I can get out that I'm sending there. And as soon as I can establish more help, I'm going to send them too. And if the crisis is over and the, and the embassy is overrun in 20 minutes and we're too late, okay, we did our best. If the crisis lasts six hours and the 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 patriotic heroes that stood the line and fought held those guys for five hours or seven hours long enough to get support there, then guess what? We win, everyone's alive, and we did our job. So it was just a, a disaster across the board and uh like you said, a real a real not only a stain on on American presence in the world to have an ambassador, a sitting ambassador murdered but our reaction to it was completely it was it was a travesty and not to mention of course the loss of uh some real heroes that that stood up and held the line even without the support that they needed from their country at that time which is hard for me to even say i'll i'll back us down a little bit take a little breath throw you a little softball from the from the troopers out there and I, and this is actually something might be a softball life but I know you're passionate about this <laughs> what's the best barbecue in Texas <laughs> that's uh those are fighting words right there cuz uh, people have their favorites that's for sure. We, you know what? Today we're going to talk about you know politics. We're going to talk about religion. We're going to talk. I said, Leif, we're gonna, they're asking about barbecue. He's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Touchy subject. It's heavy. We, we might not want to get there, man. I don't want. I don't want to get a bunch of Twitter haters <laughs> say the wrong barbecue. I don't know. Any true Texan's going to take their barbecue very seriously. There's no doubt about that. Um, I. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly a passion down there in Texas, and it's uh, it's a big deal. But uh, I got to go with. Um, I got to go with Cooper's Pit Barbecue. Where's that? Lano. It's in Lano, Texas. The the original. They've had a, they've had a, a couple more that've opened up in Austin area now, but uh, it is uh, it's awesome. You walk in that place, you get just a big plastic tray, and there's just giant smokers around. You go up and you just like, I want that piece of brisket. I want those ribs. I want that sausage, mm. and you just take it and you weigh it and. Then you just get after it, Jocko. You probably wouldn't like. I mean, I, I know that now that you've gone vegan, you probably <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jocko is not a vegan eater. For those out there that are listening, uh, he is uh, very, very much a carnivore. <laughs> awesome. It, uh, Wait, what's the spot again? It's Cooper's Pit Barbecue in Lano, Texas. I'll write that down. All right. Next question: Is there a way to practice? This is back to leadership. Is there a way to practice the hard conversations? I'm not known for my delicate finesse. Well, I'm glad you're not known for your delicate finesse because neither am I, generally. <laughs> uh, I'm a pretty direct guy, and uh, I'm a default aggressive leader, uh, I think, by nature. Uh, but that's something that you know I learned from, from Jocko, really, is you, know, you, always, you always use jujitsu as, as an analogy and you know, how the, the direct approach and particularly, you know, as a, as a, as a white belt wonder myself, I mean, when you're training jujitsu, it's like you're going for the three moves that you know, people know it's coming and it's very easy to defend, right? So if you can, if you can set up like I'm going for this, but then I'm going for something else and it's that indirect approach, uh, generally, generally is more, more successful. You just talked about that with the ice cream ride, the bicycle yep. with your, your daughter. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, there's so many examples of that where we see. And uh, often that direct approach, hey, my way, do it this way, just doesn't get the job done. I think, is there a way to practice the hard conversations? 
100% there is. And so many people think they're above rehearsals, role play. Those are, those are things that are critical to SEAL performance on the battlefield. I think a lot of people don't realize that we actually we, we do work rehearsals and walkthroughs before every single operation. And we try to mimic that. Maybe it's, you know, we're out training in the desert. We might even have like, you know, we might lay out rocks or, or put tape on the ground so it, it, it mimics build. If we, if we, if there's not actual buildings to use for training facilities or, or, uh, uh, and we have everyone stand together in their sticks and we know who's getting on the helicopter here and, and these guys are going to be on the second helicopter there. Those are the kind of things that allow people in the dark of night when it's crazy and it's chaotic to go to the right place, do what they're supposed to do. Everything is simple as, unloading from a vehicle just we we would practice that we you know we we, we had this uh we had this giant truck that we used when when the id threat started getting really bad in iraq uh initially um seal seal assaulters were riding in the back on benches in in the back of a humvee kind of an open bed like a truck truck type back uh, and then the id threat the roadside bomb threat started getting so dangerous that we had to put guys inside armor and so uh, that means that Humvees can only carry five guys. You know, if you don't have guys in the back, so um, so we had to take this giant. We call it the man truck, and we, we I think we nicknamed it Big Zev. Right. Was our was our truck, and it was a it was a big um, five ton truck, and you know a flatbed truck, and and they I don't know if previous SEALs or if the Army had done it or Marines, but we had welded these uh, a quarter inch steel uh, plates around it, and then we had. Uh, then we had uh, sandbags in the bottom of it, so that was like our that was our protection. And most of the sandbags were like torn up because of boots going in and out. And so it was you're just sitting on sand. So if you got blown up, it would not have provided a whole lot of protection for you. But you'd be get, blown up in sandy. Getting out of that truck is is substantial. When you got 20 guys sitting in the back of that truck, and they're you know uh, it, with some of our guys, Iraqi uh, uh, soldiers that were with us, our Jundies, um, and you got to op- swing open this giant heavy you know quarter inch steel doors in the back and then you got to put a ladder out and everyone's got to climb down that ladder that takes some time and guess what that, it, that, that, can, that can turn into three stooges real quick no doubt just, people, just, can fall just off. people can get injured uh, we've had guys fall off of trucks like that and dislocate their shoulders and literally have to get sent home uh, but more important if it's if it takes three minutes or four minutes to do something like that that's three or four minutes that you don't have guns pointed in, in, in every direction uh, and it's critical so we had to practice that and practice that and practice that until we could do it in less than 30 seconds and and then if we have two different assault forces we got to make sure assault ones line up on the left side of the road assault twos line up on the right side of the road I mean those things that you we have to practice that over and over and over again and it seems really juvenile it seems very elementary but if if you did if you took the time to practice that performance your performance is so much better when you actually get out in the dark of night the chaos of being in an unknown area and worried about you know bad guys and where they are and all those things happening and making sure people went to the place they need to go so having those conversations practicing it sitting down with someone who understands how that person might respond for a tough conversation role play maybe you know they they uh, they they try different scenarios where they're they're really it's a softball or easy scenario it's a difficult scenario and and uh it's the worst case scenario the worst case scenario so the more you do that 
the better it is. And this is something that Jocko and I have done quite a bit is, with companies we work with is role play. You got to counsel a guy, and it's easy just to say, "Well, you screwed up. We're firing you." But if it's this is a good guy, he messed up. You got to try to get him on board to use this plan, or you have to talk him down from doing this out. On, you know, he did something out in town that's making the company look bad. Whatever it is. Uh, and you have to talk to them, and that role play is critical, and it makes you better, and it enables you to perform better. Uh, and so, yes, you have to do that. Yep. Rehearse. Yep. Three or four iterations with someone dealing with in a role play scenario, they get better. You, you can literally see them get better. It's pretty, uh, pretty cool. We got pretty good getting in and out of Big Zev. <laughs> nice. All right. Next question. There was recent news about combatives in the SEAL teams. What was the evolution towards MMA? So the SEAL teams has gone through a whole plethora of various kind of hand-to-hand combat type things. When I, when I first came in, there was something called SCARS, and I, it stood for scientific something, 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 something. But it was uh, it sort of looked like a... Kung Fu? Yeah, it was, it was very... Um, actually, I think it was based on, on Sansu, right? Uh, which is a martial art. Anyways, so that was kind of when I showed up there. Then we kind of morphed towards something a little bit more modern, and then we morphed towards something else. And so we were constantly kind of looking and searching for something that was efficient. We ended up going with uh, this one this one contractor for several years, and, you know, so use this, this one contractor for several years. And then eventually, especially once the war started and we had guys on a regular basis doing hand-to-hand combat against the enemy. And for, for those of you that don't understand when that would happen, if we go into a building and there's people in there that don't have weapons, well, you can't just gun them all down. You have to get control of them if they're military age males you probably got to cuff them you got to get them down to the ground you got to control them now there's a whole variety of things that can happen the guy can be unarmed but literally combative you know he can square up and say okay it's on we've seen that and people might be surprised to hear that uh people actually do that you know you got a gang of big tough seals there that are going to going to put you down we've had multiple people like not comply oh you're not going to put me down and uh it doesn't usually go too well for them. So that's that's one end of the spectrum. You then you go down the spectrum where it's someone that just is scared and they're frozen with fear. So, but but you're yelling at them to get down in Arabic, which is you know your Arabic's not great. You're yelling at them. They're scared. They freeze. So now what are you going to do? You can't just stand there and keep yelling at them. You've got to get them to the ground, get them in control, so you continue the clearance. Then there's people that are going to so you've got and then all the way down to someone that just you know you, they see they see you, they put their hands up, they lay down. That's great. That's easy. So as we started getting into these scenarios on a regular basis, we we realized that the the system that had been taught was ineffective. And that's and and also luckily we had a bunch of guys in the SEAL teams that were into jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and wrestling and MMA in general. And so that kind of came in and started people started saying, "Hey, why don't you just do this?" And this will actually get a person under control. And actually, you told a good story uh, to me today when we were talking about jujitsu about that. Uh, tell that. That's a good. That's a good little uh, explanation of where we were and where we where we got to. Yeah, in my first platoon, we went through that that training, uh, and uh, that was our prisoner handling training. So that's what that's what we did, and and uh, that's what we, we we practiced handling prisoners and searching them and putting them on the ground, all that stuff, handling them. Um, and so you know, we're told this is the way to do it. This is you know, well. 
when we start going against role players, I remember one in particular. Um, we're going against. Uh, we're we're in the kill house and we're moving through. And and of course we're we're this isn't live fire. You're going against role players. They're, they're shooting back at you with sim munition, which is a paint round through our our actual weapons. It's great training because then you have then you you have to deal with people. You have to actually wrestle with people. You actually have to engage targets or they're shooting back at you. Outstanding training. And we we've talked about that before, but but uh, it is. One of the things that really stood out to me was I remember one one particular guy. One of the role players was a a pretty large guy. I mean, he was probably six four, six five, like two hundred and fifty pound guy, big guy. And me and and this guy wasn't a seal. He wasn't a seal. I think he was a gunner's mate or something. He was just volunteering to come up and be a role player. Great, you know, helps us with training. Um, and so you know, a small role player, you're able to get them down to the ground, hold, hold them, and and uh, you know, get get a search on them. And um, me and and another one of our guys, who was a big a, a big guy. I mean, this guy had arms big around as my legs. This seal was was a large large man, very strong guy. And uh, we grabbed this guy. We're we're trying to get him to the ground, and he's not being compliant. He's being he's resisting us, and it's hard. I mean, this this is difficult for me and this other guy. And we're not we're not small guys. I mean, we're we're strong guys. We're we're getting this guy to the ground, but he's not cooperating. And we're having a hard time keeping him down. Another one of our guys, who was actually a lot smaller than us, he was probably a 180-pound guy. I'm 200 pounds, and, and the other C I was describing is probably 230-pound guy. And uh, his uh, so this this other seal comes up, and he's like a 180-pound guy. He's trained jujitsu. He's got a little bit of that jujitsu. He spent uh, spent a little time, you know, at, at the Gracie Academy, and and uh, had had was one of the one of the first guys I knew who who, who was pretty pretty skilled in, in jujitsu, and and uh, he. He gets this this uh, this big guy that you know the role players wrestling around that Gunner's made and uh, not cooperating. We're wrestling around with him. He comes up there, gets the guy, gets a gets a knee on him, goes like knee on stomach, and the guy the guy can't do anything. And you know here's this 180 pound guy completely controlling this large guy that two of us couldn't do before. And I was like, I need to start training some jujitsu because that stuff works. And it was just a, it was just a reality of like body control. I can control this guy. I mean, knee, knee on stomach, get his arms, got him zip tied, done. I mean, he's, and he actually, when we debrief with him, you know, he, he comes and now, now he's out of his role player element. He's like, he's like, Hey, that was pretty cool. And then I think he actually probably started training some jujitsu because he, he, he realized like just how effective it was for a guy who really understood body control to be able to just get a knee on him, hold him down, you know, and, and be able to control him even though he was half the size of this dude. Interestingly, that's how most that's why most of us start. Because they feel it, it happens to, yeah, to you absolutely. and you're like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was like you you're know, like, How's this like guy who's yeah. you know yep. way, you know, he looks so much smaller than me and he's just yep. crushing me, how's that possible? Yeah. So that was you know, and that, that case that you just described happened. Like you know, every day in the SEAL team, somebody else that that knew some jujitsu, you know, would would have that scenario happen, and eventually, the 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 correct answer rises up, and people say, "Hey, look, this is working. This is not working," and so that's how we ended up with uh, with more of an MMA based approach because it's not just pure jujitsu; it's everything. It's Muay Thai. It's boxing. It's it's you know weapons retention pieces to it. It's Hitting people, learning how to hit people with your gun, what we call a muzzle strike, which is, again, this is one of those things where we kind of would get, be told that the, like the muzzle strike would would just it will kill people. Yeah, it would kill people, or is going to definitely incapacitate me instantly and knock people out. And the fact of the matter is, and 
I know I know Leif and I have seen I don't even know how many people I've seen muscle strikes over and over and over again and it just the the amount I don't even think I ever saw an actual knockout I mean you see some damage it hurts and it cuts the person's face open and it makes them bleed everywhere and it's a complete nightmare and you have to take them to medical and it's it's just a bad thing whereas Somebody that knows a little bit of MMA can go in and get control of these people and take them down, and it's it's no factor. So that's what ended up taking over, and it's definitely a, a good thing and a positive thing, and it's been it's been cool to talk to the guys that are now carrying on with the program. Next question. How do you deal with anger and flared tempers in yourself or your team? Leif, I'm going to go ahead and turn that one over to you. I got a lot of experience with this one. <laughs> Leif's way more experienced than me. In well, I'm losing, yeah, and losing your temper. <laughs> I've, uh, I've got a lot of experience in this one. And uh, I talked about being a direct guy, being a, being a, uh, a default aggressive guy. And, uh, and that's good. There's a lot of good in that. There's also some bad when you lose your temper, when you, you, know, you lose your cool. One, you know, when you get emotional about things and react to stuff, you don't make good decisions. And so, you know, we, we always taught our, our guys that the most important quality they could have as a combat leader is to remain calm and make good decisions under chaos and pressure. So, uh, that doesn't happen when you lose your temper. Um, so, uh, you know, when I, I look back on that, the, the other thing about it too is when you do lose your temper about stuff and it's, um, I can give you a number of scenarios where, where it happened where if guys had, uh, and people always think like seals are always focused all the time, you know, and it's life and death for you guys out there. When we talk about businesses, they say that all the time, like it's life and death for you guys, you know, so it's not really life and death for my guys, but how do I get them to stay focused? Guess what? Um, people lose discipline, right? People lose discipline if there's not leaders that are holding the, those standards and, and pushing it hard. And I remember one time in particular, there's we were patrolling back to our combat outposts and, uh, we've been on a long operation. It was a foot patrol into a dangerous area and, uh, we captured a bunch of prisoners and we had to, we had to, uh, walk them back on foot because they, there were so many IED threats in that area. Um, I think we finally met up with some Bradley fighting vehicles, a smaller tank from the army that came down. We loaded them up in that and, and, uh, and they took, they took them back from there. But so we're walking back, uh, patrolling back and we're almost, you know, we're, we're still a, a few hundred yards back away from this combat outpost, but we're in enemy territory. And I could see that some of the guys are starting to not be as focused, like looking down their weapons and dropping security and those things. And, um, and I was infuriated by that. I was totally infuriated by that. And it was because I, I knew what was at stake that look, if, if we're not disciplined all the way back until we're inside that wire of the, of the friendly combat outpost, we could take fire at any moment. And if we're not watching, you know, at that very second we get shot at, people might get killed. You know, it, it decreases our probability of winning that firefight of, of bringing everybody back. So, uh, so it was a big deal. And, and, uh, but I, I definitely lost my cool on that. I, when I came back, I was, chewing ass and like fired up at people and like here this is why this is important and i and I, looking back on that out like that's that's not the best way to do that right the best way to do that is to say um well i mean force guys to to to, to keep security remind them to keep security certainly while while it's happening uh but getting back and saying guys here's why we got to keep security i know we're only you know a couple hundred yards from the combat outpost but recognize there are enemy fighters out here and they're going to hit us when we least expect it um, and just because it hasn't happened to us before, you know, even though we've done this dozens of times, does not mean that it won't happen to us 
the next time. And we can't, you know, this is important. Think about how you would feel if somebody got killed when you were supposed to be holding security as they were crossing the street and you weren't paying attention. You know, it's interesting you use that example. I almost feel that you showing legit anger at that point was a positive thing. Like, you want to make it perfectly clear to everybody. And the way you get their attention, because it's not like you lose your temper all the time, is by, you know, getting angry and people go, oh, you know, he's he's he doesn't lose his temper very often. Here he is super fired up. Well, I don't I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem. It's not a problem to get angry. I got really, really angry. OK, <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those things where it, it would have been more effective for me yep. to be stern yeah. and, and, and not back down from that in, in, in the least and not treat it lightly right, in, in the right. league. I'm not saying that at all, but I think just to, lo- to to yell and scream and those things, it's just never the best way to get you're the right. point across. You're right. You're right. That know? is true. If you if you completely lose and you're yelling and screaming, it's 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 not a good thing. And even though you're absolutely right, it was important and, and I, I, I wanted that addressed, it was like it, it just wasn't the best way to address yeah, it. Yeah. Looking back on that now. One time in particular too was uh I can think uh when uh you wanted to make some changes to our operation. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I can't remember if we talked about that in the last podcast or not, but we, we, uh, I was ready to cancel the op. Jocko came in and was like, well, what, what about this? You know, maybe, yeah, do we look at it from this direction? Why, why don't you guys maybe patrol in on this route and not go across this bridge where there's a choke point and they might bury IDs in the road? And I was like, we've been looking at this for hours. It's like, now he's changing it 10 minutes prior. Like, cancel the op. <laughs> And Jocko, he, he could have got, he could have lost his cool with me because I just lost my cool. And you know, I've been, I, we've been hours at this, and I was frustrated. I was ready to get get this op launched, and all the paperwork requirements and the levels of of approvals that we need, and running around trying to you know fix all these things. And and uh, he actually just looked at me and was like, "We don't need to cancel the op. It's fine. <laughs> it's gonna be fine." And then, and then you you actually again asked me some questions like. Is, does what I'm saying make sense? And I wanted to be like, no, <laughs> I can't. You know, but it was like, yes, I hate it. it totally when makes sense. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it totally makes sense. You're like, okay, how long is it going to take to change it? And you're like, I was like, two minutes. You're like, well, we have eight minutes left, so no problem. Let's like, get it done. We don't need to cancel the operation. I was like, no, we don't. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and like you said, it's important to maintain your your cool. And the way I do that is by being detached. Talk about it all the time. In that situation, when you got all fired up at me, I was like, eh. "Like, okay, you know, Leif's getting fired up." And I, I didn't think Leif's getting fired up because he's immature or because he's doesn't can't control himself. I thought to myself, "Hey, you know what? He's been working on this all day. He's he's got a lot of pressure on him. There's a lot of frustration when you're doing these plans and doing all this paperwork. I understand where he's coming from." Let me give him some space, let him vent a little bit, and then let's reapproach this thing. That's how I'm coming at the situation. So you, how you handle it though is perfect because had you blown back up at me, which is course. what the natural human reaction is, right? Then I get mad. We're yelling at each, even though we, we have would, a we, tremendously close relationship. We would have canceled the op. Yeah, it, it would have been a big deal. It, it, or even if even if you end up saying like you know, as so many leaders would do, like you're gonna do it this way and then i i'm mad at you and i'm i'm all pissed off you 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 know you came in and trumped me and oh yeah and by the way what happens when something goes wrong on the operation and i'm like jocko told yep. us to do you it told yeah. us to do this you and then, yeah. then then you have those frictions but the bet the the best thing that you did in that situation was you actually just smiled and laughed at me <laughs> like just take it easy. well i didn't it's like not that big of a just, deal. just to make that clear i didn't laugh at him like he was a little kid yeah. you know, i was just like, like hey man you know and he knows me and he knows exactly where i was coming from like hey 
I know it's. I, but, know, what, I know what's going. It was on. the perfect way to de-escalate right. the situation, right. which which made me de-escalate exactly, and made me realize like, yeah, it makes total sense. And then we executed. It, it was no problem. Yep. That's how you deal with. That's how you deal with. So when someone gets mad at you, de-escalate. When you feel yourself getting spun up, detach. When have you got spun up and lost your cool? Uh, I've said this before on the podcast. Printers and copy machines. They they don't like me and I don't like them. <laughs> and so, it, are we talking straight up office space? Style? The office space style. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't like I don't like printers and, and copy machines. They don't ever do what I want them to do, and so I get I get angry at them. So I lose I lose my mind a little bit. Uh, but no, I don't I don't lose my temper very often. You know, it doesn't doesn't do me a lot of good, and it, and it usually it usually doesn't help the situation. You know, doesn't help you solve the problem. And and my mind is always all right. How do I get this thing solved? It never helps you solve the problem. That's nope. for sure. Nope. So if if you're like me and and you lose your cool, you gotta you gotta practice it. You gotta rehearse that. You gotta make sure that you're detaching and uh, not losing your cool, so that you can get the job done and win. That's that's what it's all about. And the Delta Platoon commander, you know, he would go into a little bit of rage from time to time. <laughs> and and you know, one day the Delta Platoon commander is gonna be out of the military, and he's coming right on this podcast, and he knows it. He's fired up, but uh. You know, he's my my other brother, and that's going to be a good time. But you know, he would get some rage going, and, and I'd have to I'd have to uh, back him down a little bit and say, "Bro, it's me. No reason to get fired up right now. We're we're here to win, yep. and I'm here to help you." And he'd go, "I know, but damn, <laughs> awesome! All right, next one, and this is a." A pretty, uh, pretty heavy subject, actually. Jocko and Leif, thoughts on cops being ambushed. What should police departments do, be doing to prepare, especially with no command support for training? ISIS is an American law enforcement role in battling this terrorism. We have been training active shooter a lot, so these are. This is actually a conglomeration of a few questions, but the the basic question is. Thoughts on the cops being ambushed. What should police departments be doing to train for that and prepare for it? And then how do civilians fit into that picture? And what can civilians do to help? Leif, the horrible shooting that took place in Texas. Horrific. Horrific stuff. And uh, certainly we lift up the families and those lost in our prayers and, and the entire, you know, the entire police force there in Dallas and Baton Rouge and, and across the country. Uh, where they've uh, they've lost lost their brothers. Uh, I think first of all, I, we have tremendous respect for law enforcement, for uh, you know the boys in blue, and and uh, whether it's police departments, you know sheriffs, deputies, federal law enforcement, you know they they protect the home front, and we have to have that. We have to have that. We have to have we have to be a nation of laws, and and uh, without that, we've got complete lawlessness. And so, uh, and I think Americans need to show appreciation for their police departments and for their law enforcement officers. Uh, we can't do that enough. We got to thank those, those folks. I think, uh, as far as there, you know, this is just another example. You know, when we are talking about these, the, the police ambush, this is another example that just as we talked about in that first question, darkness, right? The evil that's in the world. There are some evil people that celebrate this evil. Like it's a great thing. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, 
uh, you know, there's just no no justification for for the kind of horrific stuff that we've seen. Uh, you know, these ambushes on on police officers, and uh, so I, I think police need to start. I, you're already seeing uh, you're already seeing police police that are getting they're getting long guns for the forces that didn't have them. A lot of them had them, but maybe they didn't have access to them or couldn't get to them quickly. They're going to need to have those long guns. Where if someone's targeting you with a rifle and all you have is a pistol, it's not good for you. That's not it's, a good scenario. It, for those of you that don't know anything about guns, like Echo, the difference between having a rifle and a pistol is night and day. I mean, let, let's just break it down. A pistol, if you're a good shot with a pistol, maybe. If you're a great shot with a pistol, maybe you're getting out, what, what? 50 yards. 50 yards. You're a good shot with a rifle, and you're out to 800 yards pretty easily. Now, on top of that, you got a pistol. You can a pistol round will stop when it hits something. You know, it's, sometimes pistol rounds stop when they hit regular windows on cars. Uh, uh, a high powered rifle is going to rip through the doors of cars, no problem. It's going to be so. There is a there is a massive massive difference between being out in the street with a pistol and being out in the street with a rifle. So luckily, there's well not luckily, but they are starting to arm the police for these scenarios that you're going to get in. I remember the first time, first patrol I went on in Iraq, in in Humvees, and we hit we we hit a a steel hedgehog, right? The little obstacles that Americans had put out. I don't know if they left them there or been some problem. So I'm driving along, all of a sudden, boom, we hit one. It was my vehicle, and I thought to myself, I just hit an ID. I'm about to die. But our vehicle gets jacked up. We're like propped up, and everyone poured out in the street and like took up security. But everyone's out there with their little M4s. And and you feel even you know because we wanted machine guns, <laughs> and we never went out again without you know two heavy machine guns per Humvee because we wanted to be ready to rock and roll. Uh, so that's the same feeling you're going to get rolling out with just a pistol. So that's number one. Number two, these the, the police departments they got to start looking at tactics at urban combat tactics and how to handle these situations how to cover and move primarily how to cover and move it always is shocking to me when i see the the when i see people not using the use of cover when when there's gunfight or potential gunfight or even if there's not that's one thing in ramadi like when you're walking down the street in ramadi you don't walk down the street you're moving from cover to cover and if you're a police officer let's at least be near cover so if shooting starts you can get in cover when i see arrests happening actual arrests happening they're trying to they're trying to get someone to stop and the the police officers are standing out in the open to try and tell someone to stop don't stand out in the open stand behind cover now there's a there's a complexity there because you want the person that you're trying to stop to be able to clearly identify that you're a police officer right but let's make the error on the side of being behind cover so if that person does draw a gun you can be able to react them from a place of cover because if you're the difference between standing behind cover and standing out in the open, if someone starts shooting at you, oh, if you've got cover, you're good to go. That's literally you're good to go. They have to do, a, they have to hit a tiny, tiny little target of whatever's exposed to you, you know, part of your head. Whereas if you're standing in the open, they're going to hit you. So I think, I think those tactics need to start be looking at, they need to start looking at the individual tactics of doing arrests, and then they need to start looking at the larger group tactics when you have either one, you know, you got your partner out there, how do you operate together, how do you cover and move together, What's the best way to react to these scenarios? And then, furthermore, 
when another group, when, when other police show up, how do you then quickly organize into elements that can operate together like a military unit? And I know that's going to make some people scared, but like that's the, the, they shouldn't be scared of that. When you're in a gunfight, you need to use tactics, gunfighting tactics, and those come from the military. So they should be able to operate in pairs. They should be able to operate in elements and, and grow until you get to a point where you can handle these situations. And that's going to take a lot of training, and that's going to take money, and that's going to cost. And I was talking to some of my friends that are police officers. And, and a matter of fact, one guy I just met, re- really good guy, really fi- fired up jiu-jitsu player, of course. And he said the amount of training that they get is very, very minimal. So, for example, a regular police officer, they actually don't. Oftentimes, they don't have designated times for training. They don't have times to say, okay, you're going to work 40 hours this week. Four of those hours are going to be training. And and that's completely wrong. You should have mandatory, real good training, force-on-force training. And that's what Leif talked about earlier where you're shooting live uh, or simunition rounds or paintball rounds at each other. So you're getting used to those stressful situations. So, Because I'll tell you what, you square off with a guy. Three, you square off the guy one time and he's got simulation and you stand out in the open and don't get cover and he pulls out that gun and shoots you three times in the face with, with simulation and then the next time you go again, you're going to be behind some cover. It's going to happen. And, and, so, and that's what we want people to do. You know what's interesting about that is you know, we, there was a real emphasis on live fire when I first came in, in, into the SEAL teams and a lot of the instructors that were putting us through training had not had any real experience yet, any real combat experience. Uh, and so... We still had those folks that were saying, well, we're going to focus on live fire because that's more important and that's better training. And the reality is it's not. It's actually worse training because you're dealing with paper targets. Yep. And it's it's simple. It's like either they're armed, there's a, there's a weapon in their hand, or they're not. Shoot them, don't shoot them. Did you hit the target? Did you not? So uh, while it's important to be able to operate with live fire, and that's that's great, so much better to operate against a role player. Now you go into a room, you're like – the guy's moving. You can't see him. He's trying. He's, he's, you know, he's, is he shooting you? Is he not shooting it? Is, is he? Maybe he isn't armed. But if he's bum rushing you, uh, and you know, and, and and for us, you know, if a guy's yelling Allah Akbar and and uh, running at you, he's probably a high suicide bomber threat. So he's uh, he's getting smoked. He's getting smoked. Jack. So it's uh, so I, I think police police forces have absolutely got to make time for training, but they got to put those realistic scenarios in there too. And and and. You know, our, our police officers, are in, and, and as Jocko said, we've got many, many friends that are in, in law enforcement. Um, some of them former SEALs that we worked with that have gone, gone that route now. And, uh, they're in very difficult scenarios all the time. It's one of the hard things about uh, close quarters combat is our instructors always tell us, like, don't game it. Don't game it. Meaning, and I talked about with a kill house, how you can change the walls and maneuver around. When you're thinking in your mind, I know what I'm going to see when I enter this room. That's what you generally see, and so it's a it's a difficult thing. You got to make sure it's easy to get really amped up. Your heart rate's going, and you're like like you know you know you because there's pressure on. You got instructors there, and you want to make sure you make your shots and make good decisions. And particularly as a new guy, when you haven't done that before, and you're going through it for the first time, and uh, so it's if you're gaming it and you're you're already envisioning what you're going to see, that's how you react to it. And, and you end up. I mean, I remember I shot a target, and the sergeant's like, "Babin, look at that target." And there's no, it's it's a there's nothing in the guy's hand. There's no, and I I I thought I saw a weapon on the target, and I so I I, I hammered the target, you know, with, with rounds, and uh, I'm looking at the holes, in the, you know, the chest, of the you target. Vaporized a hotel. 
Did you engage hostels? I vaporized hostels. <laughs> I think we wrote the movie Navy Seals. But that's that kind of thing can really get to you. So, um, and only you only learn that when you you only realize how easily that can happen when it happens to you in training and, and when they change those things around uh, so that you go in there and it's a, the hallway's different and you're moving a different direction and the there's you know uh, it, it causes those kind of issues. So the, the, what what you're talking about is you want to train for the unexpected. That's what you want to have happen. And the things that you see in combat are crazy. The things that cops deal with, go watch YouTube. I said this last time we talked about this subject. Go watch YouTube and watch, see the crazy things that people do out in the, in the world. And you got to be prepared for all those things. And how do you prepare? you got to learn to think, and you got to learn to think quickly. I was talking to one of our guys from Tasking to Bruiser the other day, and it, it's a... Uh, I'm not going to say his name, obviously, but he's one of one of, one of my favorite guys who did that deployment with us, came back, and I think it was either his next deployment or the deployment after, went to Afghanistan, and did a lot of incredible stuff in Afghanistan, and again, I, I put him through training for that, so I was running training, and he was just a great guy, stepped up, and I, I said, hey, man, what was the, because I didn't fight in Afghanistan, I said, what was, you know, what was the difference between... What you know, your deployment to Afghanistan, where you got in a bunch of gunfights and got after it, compared to what it was like in Ramadi. And he said, you know, the, the biggest difference was in Afghanistan when things are happening, they're they're usually at a distance. You know, you're in, you're looking at a, across a valley, you're looking down a ridge line, you're looking, you know, you're, you you can observe and you can got some time to think and you can get some cover and think. Okay, I think this is where they are. Let me take another look. You can pop your head out. You can assess. And he, and he just looked at me and he said, in Ramadi, you had to make a decision now. And I, I started laughing because that, that, you know, you don't, there's no distance. The person is across the street. The person is two buildings away. And you as a leader or even not as a leader, as a shooter, you got to make a decision right now. As a matter of fact, the leader's not going to tell you what to do. You can engage from across the street. You, you're not going to wait for the leader to tell you what to do. You got to know what to do. You got to act and and that intensity of urban combat combat and again you know this is like when uh, when we talk about the Chechen war and what those guys that's what was so stressful and those lessons learned where they said hey in the urban combat environment these guys need to be cycled out of the urban combat environment because the ID threat because the sniper threat because the immense pressure of having to make decisions now they should be cycled out like I think it was every two months and here we were I'm putting you guys out in the field for six straight months into an urban combat apologize Leif apologize to you bruiser guys it. damn hard we loved it but so so that and let's that's go back and that's what these cops are dealing with that's what these police officers are dealing with is they got to get practice and rehearse making these decisions now because that's what they have to do so now what can you do to buy yourself an extra quarter second an extra half a second well don't stand out in the open create some distance why are you approaching the person ask yourself why well, I mean, if where's this guy? Is he going to run from me? If he runs, what's going to happen? Is he going to become more of a threat, less of a threat? So you can you can make those decisions. Another piece of this, citizens of America. I think we actually need to teach in high school, in ninth grade freshman classes. I think there needs to be a class called "How to Get Arrested by the Police," and they tell you what you should do when you get pulled over by the police or you get told to get down by the police or you get told to get away from the wall by the police you know what you do you do it you do it that's what you do you show them your hands you get your hands out of your pockets you put your hands in the air and you know what part of that class should be is the students that are going through the class get to be the cop and get to use simunition get to feel what it's like 
to know, to not know, actually. To not know when you pull this guy over, is he, what's he going to do to you? And I watched a video the other day. They did a great job. Somebody suckered me in on the internet on YouTube. It was, um, watch another horrible police brutality. It's like some kind of title like that. And I'm watching it, and this, this guy that's in the car. So it's a it's traffic stop, and the guy that's in the car is, is being totally compliant. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't believe this cop is going to do anything to this guy. I can, look at this guy. He's getting his license like he was asked to. I'm like, oh, I, I, I could barely watch it because it's like another shooting. That was the title, another shooting, another death. Because I, I always think those things are horrible to watch. So I'm watching and waiting for this cop just to pull out his gun or see a quick movement and pull out his gun and shoot the guy. And the guy's just being compliant and nice and um, reaches in uh, to grab something, grab his wallet or whatever, pulls out a gun and shoots a gut, gut shots the cop. Gut shoots the cop, busts out of the car and runs. Totally caught me by surprise. So when you are getting arrested and we need to educate the citizens of America on how to get arrested, and I think that would be very helpful. Instead of protesting the cops for shooting people, they should say, okay, what can we do? We should take some ownership of this. What can we do as citizens to do a better job of getting arrested? You know, be compliant. Show your hands. That is, and, and again, I think it's important to understand the pressure that, a, that, that police are under. And, and, hey, just so everybody knows, some of those videos that I watch, I know for it's horrible and the police are to have taken shots that have made me made my stomach turn because they've been a nightmare. I already described one of these on the podcast, but that one where I saw the guy with the headphones on and a hoodie on, couldn't hear what the cop was saying, reached into his pocket to turn off his iPhone and the cop drilled him. You know, where was the cop standing? He was standing out in the wide open. In the wide open of a 7-Eleven parking lot. So he has no cover, no concealment. He's yelling at this guy. The guy turns around, wants wants to shut off his iPhone where he's listening to music so he can hear what the cop is saying. Cop drills him. And the call was, you know, guy with a gun. So I understand the anger at police when police make bad shots. But let's figure out not – let's 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 – we just talked about this. Let's not be temperamental about it. Let's not use rage. Let's, that's not going to solve the problem. What is going to solve the problem is take a step back. Let's analyze what we can do as citizens to de-escalate all these situations. Yeah, I mean, that's a good idea right there about let the, you know, in your, it was high school, your example was high school, but let the citizen know how it feels to be the cop. Because really, that's all you see. Because the cop has all this power, you know, and all this stuff. But... They don't know. I think when they see that kind of stuff, they don't know because because of the the emotions that get invoked when they see it. So if they understand, that's like a two way street to facilitate that learning process. So when you, so when the, so let's say that was a common thing, that was one of like a normal thing, one of the Wait, normal. What things was a common thing for to people to go through this training? Oh, okay, yeah, one yeah. way, and that was yeah. just kind of part of our, our culture, you know, where. As a citizen, we know we're well aware of what cops go through and all this stuff because we've been through it and we understand. We just totally understand. That would make the whole landscape of cop versus citizen or cops working alongside with citizens, it would stick out like a sore thumb when someone was suspicious. Exactly. Otherwise, otherwise people would be just, yeah, I know exactly yep. what to do. It'd be like clockwork, routine. And, and myself, I've done vehicle interdiction over in Iraq and I know what it's like to walk up those cars and see what those people are looking like. And and so when I when I get pulled over by the cops, which hasn't happened to me a lot, but you know, speed I've gotten busted for speeding. 
I'm, I'm sorry. Citizens of America. But, you know, I've gotten pulled over. I'm, you know, totally. Discipline equals freedom. Yeah. Yep. Totally, you know, <laughs> just, just hands, very slow movements. I don't, you know, I want to make their job as easy yeah. as possible. As yeah. easy as possible because I know they're stressed. You know, hey, officer, how you doing? Sorry, it's going a little fast. You know, what, what do you want from me? Yeah. I'm here to comply. On that note, too, I mean, of course, they're going to, they're going to be, they're going to be police that don't make good decisions and, and, and maybe go over the top or maybe they're, you know, they're, they lost their cool for some other th- issue or they, or they get a call. I mean, often, and this is kind of where I was going, when I was talking about this earlier, was if they get a call, like I saw an armed guy or you fit the description of someone you're looking for, they're already seeing you as a threat. So ha- having that, you know, if you feel like, you're not getting, and believe me, this is this is always the kind of myth in our culture as well. Uh, I'm about as a white boy as you can get, as you know, a, a blonde-headed, uh, uh, pale-skinned guy. Uh, I've been mistreated by the police, that's for sure. And it, when uh, when that was happening, uh, when I got shoved on the ground, a little short barrel shotgun jammed into my my skull. Uh, even when I was being compliant, I. I didn't lose my cool because what does that gain me? I, I I'm not going to resist arrest. I'm going to I'm just going to I'm going to I got to I got to suck that up. Then I can uh, you know if you want I'm going to complain about my rights later. I, I can do that. You know exactly. now look I was being a knucklehead as a, as a young uh, you know as a uh, a young guy back in the day. But uh, uh, and I probably deserved to be roughed up. But it was it was one of those things where like I, then now is not the time to complain about it. You you cooperate with the police. You want to file a complaint later. You can do that. Yes. Yeah, and that t- typically ends up to be well. I mean, I guess you know it's debatable. I guess, but that typically becomes the best discourse because at the time, if the if a copper, whoever, whoever, I used to be a bouncer, so it's it, on a way lower level. It's kind of the same thing. I remember but, those days, Echo. I think you yeah, you had to bounce me out of the the bar a few times. Right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but um, if if you start taking it right then and there where you know you're losing your temper or something like that making the 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 job difficult like just like you said like that's not gonna you're not gonna recapture your rights at that time like if you think your rights are being violated you're not gonna you're not gonna get your rights back at that time those the ones that are being violated. Uh, let let me say something worse than that you have a rookie cop that doesn't know what he's doing that well and he for whatever reason decides he's gonna take that shotgun off safe Right. Or he decides he's going to put the finger on the trigger, and now you start jerking around and moving, and all of a sudden you got an accidental discharge into your head. Right. So I, not, it, that that's not real beneficial. It's for, not right. beneficial but for even life. Even before before it gets to that, it, think about just the person who's going to make the decision to either resist or put up a, a, a fight about their rights, or um, you know, or this officer being a power trip, having a power trip or whatever. Just think about that person's decision making right rather as opposed to we're going to let this happen i'm going to cooperate fully regardless of your power trip or regardless of the rights that you violated or whatever and then if i believe that my rights are violated to pursue it later like exactly. how you're saying so, because if you choose to pursue it right then and there it's not going to work out and no. you know actually now i'm sitting here thinking about this it, it doesn't need to be like a high school education thing that'd be great but like what could we do in the immediate the 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 government the police should get together and start making videos of saying, hey, here's what's going on, here's what the cop's feeling, here's what the cop's thinking, watch this live. You know, there's plenty of body cams now. You could say, here's what the cop's thinking. Here's what, like, they just had a, a shooting of a white guy up in Northern California a little bit ago, and he, you know, they showed him reaching for his, reaching behind him after he was being combative and walking towards people. So you, it would be cool to just freeze that frame and say, this is what a police officer is thinking right now when you're doing this. 
he's thinking, does this guy have a gun? Here's the report that I got. Here's the situation I'm in. Think about what you're doing and do the right thing. If you're getting told to get down, get down. If you're getting told to show your hands, show your hands. And I think we got to start educating. we got to start training our police better. They deserve it. We owe that to them so that they know how to work as an individual to use cover, as pairs to use cover and move, as elements to use cover and move. And then we, we need to put them in the stressful, realistic environments that are changing all the time, that they have to learn how to think now. And then on the civilian side, our civilians need to be educated as well on how to get arrested, how to comply, what it feels like to be on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, man. I th- and like I said, I think that does create this kind of this overall understanding of the process. Like I remember I used to be a bouncer and, you know, it's like check IDs, right? You, you check IDs. And when someone has a fake ID, usually you can tell in their behavior. And I'm not saying I can tell a guy's underage right. or whatever Absolutely. if their behavior. I'm not saying that. But if there's some suspicion or whatever, his behavior is going to tell more of the tale, you know. But there is this kind of standard standard operating kind of way when you present your ID. You show your ID, you be quiet, and you just kind of stand there so they can look at your face, the bouncer. I'm just saying that's what typically what people do automatically. But when people do other things, it sticks out, you know. So, like I said, I think like how you were saying, if there is this understanding, like I know how it is to be the cop, I know how to get arrested, they'll do that and they'll create this pattern, like I said, where when they are acting suspicious, it won't be he was just kind of generally suspicious. It'll stick out way more. Exactly. That's a good idea, man. I don't think I ever heard that before. Leif, next question. Metallica or Pantera? This has opened up a big can of worms because we used to have uh, quite a big debate about this in TU Bruiser <laughs> back in the day. And uh, Jocko gave me a hard time because I grew up in the, the Metallica Black album era, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, which Jocko didn't even consider real Metallica. He uh, was going old school. Ride, ride the lightning. Kill them all. Kill them all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, for, for me, it was... You know what's funny? I used to think about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and these guys are going to the Vietnam War, and they're they're listening to um, um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? They're listening to the Grateful Dead. I mean, a, a large portion of the population was. We're going to war... Listening to Metallica, kill them all. So, little, little mindset shift. That is, there. Uh, that's pretty good. I got to say though, uh, I think Pantera crushes Metallica, and I got to say that uh, Cowboys from Hell is probably the greatest rock song of all time. <laughs> Roger that. I'm. Uh, I actually, I actually really like the early Metallica, and then I thought that Pantera got better after that album and, and move towards vulgar display of power vulgar display of power when they stepped good. up and went harder hold your mouth or war as, a, as opposed to Metallica who got softer so dig them both and when I got to SEAL Team 1 there was a big stereo system in the gym and it had a glass case in front of it and they'd, they'd welded like a rod into the case where you couldn't open it you, you, could, you couldn't open the case and it was locked shut in the first five, you remember the old days they had the the CD disc changers. There was, and it, this was a five disc CD changer. 
the first five Metallica albums were in there, and they could not be removed. That If you went in the gym, that's what you were listening to back in the day, Team One style. Good times. All right. I'd like to hear what you both think regarding the deaths of Bud's trainees in the past few months. Yeah, look, this is something that's been all over the news. Um, our Bud's is basic underwater demolition SEAL training, and that is that is the basic SEAL training program. That's the pipeline that we all go through uh, that uh, that we graduate from. It's a, about a 27-week program or so. Um, it's got a 70-80% attrition rate. It's, it's widely considered some of the toughest military training in the world. It's tough training, and, and it needs to be tough training. Uh, because we expect SEALs to be able to perform at a very high level on very dangerous battlefields across the globe in a lot of highly dynamic and high-pressure situations. So we got to keep those standards high. One thing that's misleading is uh, there was, you know, they're saying, well, three three deaths happened in a short period of time, you know, a few months back at, at Bud's, and, and that's that's actually not true. It, it wasn't two of those, two of the three deaths actually didn't happen in training. And so uh, people need to understand that. So, was, so what were the three deaths? So the, there the was point? there was a uh, one one death actually happened in training. There was a death of a student that drowned in the pool while going through an evolution. Um, and uh, the instructors you know, were there. They tried to resuscitate him, got him to the hospital, but they couldn't bring him back. He was gone. So that's that is a training death. That's that's the one training death. The two others that happened was um, a student that quit training drop he dropped on request as we call it which is again you know most of the students that go there this this ends up happening had uh in most most people quit most people quit that the 70 80 percent attrition rate means most of those folks are walking away so uh they're ringing the bell and 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 dropping on request which is you know quitting the program so uh a horrible situation but uh this individual uh the student you know apparently that was weighed heavily on him that he quit his dream to go to buds um and on liberty uh meaning meaning he got, he quit and then he went out wasn't under supervision anymore went into downtown san diego went to a hotel jumped off the 22nd floor killed himself which is horrible which is horrible but that that was not a training death no. Even though he was attached to the command at the time, and there's certainly, I'm sure they're taking some substantial steps to maybe uh, try to monitor guys a little bit more. But you can't, you can't put, you can't while, while horrible and tragic, and they're going to try to do everything they can to prevent that. You can't put guys in jail for six weeks after they quit. I mean, you, you can't be with them 24/7. So, um, so I think it's hard to hold, you know, the center responsible, our, our training center responsible for, for that death. And the other one that happened was uh, another guy who had who had uh, quit training, a student who had quit training while on liberty, got uh, got drunk and, and crashed his car and was killed in a car accident. Motorcycle was it a car? I think it was a car. Yeah. But, well, you know what? I, I think you just kind of explained these things. You know, one of them is training death. Training deaths shouldn't happen. It's horrible when it happens. A lot of times, there's been other drownings in the past. Oftentimes, there's some kind of a some kind of a medical issue that the person had. I don't know what the results of this guy's autopsy are, but the guy that killed himself. This was one thing that I found interesting. I was talking to one of the guys, one of my buddies that that works over there still, and I saw a picture of the guy that killed himself, and dude looked like a stud. You know. He they had a couple pictures of him. It almost looked like a, almost like a professional photography of a of a guy. You know, he was he was like a rugby player, and he was kind of looked like a stud. 
And I mentioned this to the to, to my buddy that's an instructor over there. I said, hey, man, that guy looked like a stud. What's going on? And my buddy said, hey, Jocko, they're all studs. So when I went through training, no one knew about the SEAL teams. We There wasn't this big, giant, you know, we didn't have this huge um, publicity that we have now. And so if you want to go to the SEAL teams, you kind of had to search it out. It wasn't just going to – the SEAL teams weren't going to just – land on your doorstep you had to figure it out and go for it and so there's there wasn't a lot of there was all kinds of knuckleheads going through training and he said he said when you look down the line and you look at when you talk to these kids they're the captain of the the team they're the the class president of the high school they're 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 studs and so it's no it's no different with this kid the kid was a stud and i i think and, and actually in reading some of the articles about him he this was his lifelong dream he had told everybody, I'm going to be a SEAL, I'm going to be a SEAL, I'm going to be a SEAL. And I think he quit on Wednesday. I want to say Wednesday. I don't know. I don't know when he quit. But he quit in Hell Week. And since he told everybody that's what he's going to do, you know, that was uh, the stress was too much to bear to go back to everybody and say, yeah, I didn't make it. So the, I just I want to be clear. I mean, th- these are horrible. It's, it's horrible. Absolutely. To lose young, you know, good young men who aspire to be SEALs and whether they're killed in an auto accident, uh, you know, drinking and driving or not, or, you know, a suicide. This is horrible. And we want to try to prevent that. And I'm sure I, I, I know that the, our training center is doing everything they can to try yep. to prevent that. But again, you can't lock these guys up. Yeah. You can't be at some point. They have to be released to be on liberty. They, they we can't be with them twenty four seven. So, uh, you know, you can counsel guys. You can talk to folks. Uh, and what's a shame about you know the the, uh, the the suicide is I mean some of the the best guys we serve with guys like Mark Lee and Mike Montsour both had quit buds, rang out, uh, got some maturity, went to the fleet. You know, worked hard to get ready and come back. Came back, knocked that training out of the park, and were, were outstanding awesome. team guys. <clears throat> so that's uh, that's just that that's a horrible tragedy, definitely. I, but I I think what's important for people to understand is you know for the actual training death, this stuff is there's a lot of protocols in place. It's very it's very when, when I was an instructor there, because yeah, you were an instructor there. Yeah, for so those go, of you that don't know, Leif was an instructor at Buds. I was never an instructor at Buds, but Leif worked there. You worked hell weeks. I did. And so what you don't realize when you're going through as a student, it just seems like mayhem. These guys are, you know, putting you through all these difficult, these difficult things. Well, it's very controlled. It's very controlled. And there's, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of supervision and there's a lot of different safety checks and medical checks and all those things that are happening all the time, uh, that are going on behind the scenes that the students don't even realize. So, um, you know, it doesn't mean every instructor always behaves the way they should, but most of those guys are outstanding professionals. There's a, there are levels of leadership that are there to, uh, ensure that they, they perform, perform well and do what they should do. And, and, and in almost every case, that's, you know, that's the case. Those, those instructors are, are doing an outstanding job. I think the, the, the important thing here too is to understand that those standards have got to be high. And and there are people a lot of people outside the SEAL teams, we've had a lot of pressure on us right now, particularly with the push to open up all the special operations to and infantry units to to women. This is a this is a new, a new push under the administration. And uh, our our Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus, has been all over this and, and, and pushing that and wants to see women graduate from the SEAL teams. And I think that's pretty – he's pretty open about that. And so uh, um, this is – I think the, the danger here and the concern I have is that they'll use something like this, the politicians who don't know what, what, a good, what makes a good SEAL. 
You know, they, they like they like they like to think they do, but they don't. They have no idea what makes a good seal. And uh, and they don't understand how difficult combat is. You know, people ask us sometimes, Jock, when I get questions like, tell us a good bud story. Like, we don't talk about buds. <laughs> Because everybody's been through buds in the SEAL teams, and and listen, buds is the kick in the nuts. It's a, it's a good training program. Uh, there's some stuff that's hard, certainly. Uh, there's some stuff that wasn't as hard as I thought it was, you know, it was going to be or, or, or should have been. But uh, but a lot of it's quite challenging and difficult. Um, but it's a screening process, and it, it, to, to to weed out the guys that we don't believe have the characteristics that are going to enable them to succeed on the battlefield. A lot of that is just the will to succeed through some and persevere through some really difficult challenges. So it is critical that those standards remain high because combat is so much harder, physically harder than training. Yeah, that's what I was about be. to say. You said, hey, it's important that we find that they have the will. There's also a level of physical toughness that you have to have. There just is. And and when I say physical toughness, I'm talking about the actual ability to your for your body to withstand wear and tear. And that's one key part. You know, with the 80% attrition rate, not all those people are people that quit. It's people that can't stand the cold. They physically can't handle the cold. It's people that physically can't handle the, the stress on your shoulders, on your neck, on your back, on your knees, on your ankles. It is very hardcore. You know, there's a great article that was written by two female Marines that were in, in Afghanistan that got, kind of got put out in an outpost where they were, for all practical purposes, alongside the male Marines in a field environment. And they both wrote and said, women should not be doing this. And by the way, they were both they were both really awesome Marines who had been like a, some kind of collegiate athletes. They were, they were studs. And they just said, look, we didn't have, our bodies didn't hold up. And that's one of the many things, you know, you just said it. When you're in combat, it's not, it's not, an, it's not a sport. You don't get the, you don't go to the training room afterwards and get an ice bath and a massage. You don't, and if something happens, they don't blow the whistle and come out on the field and let the trainer work on you and then pull you off and put a substitute in. That doesn't happen on the battlefield. And there aren't weight classes either. Yeah, there's no weight classes for sure. It's um, So, yeah, uh, they, they need to maintain the standards. And they need to maintain the standards. And I think we we cannot allow that to slip. And I think those instructors are doing their utmost to make sure that that happens. The other thing people need to understand, too, is when you're a student going through this, for me, this is my dream. And guess what? When Every time I'm going to med, uh, a medical check during our hell week which they do, you know, every every day you're get, you're getting checked every morning and they're taking your temperature and they're you know, they're they're te- taking your SpO2 and, and and making sure that uh you don't have pneumonia or you don't have some other, you know, uh dangerous physical uh, medical condition. Um you're sweating it out. You're sweating it out because you know, you know, I'm not going to quit this training, but what if something that I can't control happens? What if I get pneumonia? I get fluid in my lungs. What if I get sick or something happens or I get some infection in my leg or I break, you know, my ankle? I mean, these things happen to guys. And so then you end up, you can get rolled out of training. Maybe it's just compounds into an issue. So you're doing your utmost to make it through those medical checks. And people need to understand that the the students are trying to get under the radar and, and make it happen and will often push through injuries. A, a, a mutual friend of ours made it all the way through his hell week with a broken ankle, you know, running on it. He just wasn't going to stop. Just be tough. Wasn't going to stop. He was being t- tough. So, you know, so that, that's the kind of people that we want in the SEAL teams, you know. But but on the other hand, instructor staff has a difficult job because they have to make sure that those guys aren't hurting themselves. And I've actually talked to uh, I've talked to some folks who wanted to go into the SEAL teams and uh, 
had a, some medical condition that they, you know, they weren't get, they were failing their Navy physical. It's a very difficult physical exam you have to take, you know, medical exam. And uh, they said, you know what, uh, I, I just need a waiver for this. And, you know, they just give me this. And, and I, I, I had to, I've explained this to multiple people when they told me that. I said, listen, those waivers are there to protect you. They're there to protect you to make sure that you don't get killed in training, or and and to protect the team that you know when when people are relying on you and you're carrying some critical piece of gear and we're covering moving that you don't go down. So because we, you're covering up some injury, that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know it's not about you; it's about the mission. And uh, and so you know, unfortunately, this is when you're talking about these these units. It's just not everybody can participate in that. Listen, I would have I played high school football. As a linebacker and fullback, I'm five ten, you know, two hundred pounds. Uh, I, I I would have loved to play in the NFL. I'm not big enough, or strong enough, or fast enough to play in the NFL. So um, the the NFL teams are not going to benefit if I'm playing linebacker or fullback on their teams. They're going to be weaker. They're not going to be as good. Um, so uh, that's just the reality of it, right? We got to keep those standards high. Um, and un, you know, political pressure, uh, I think, is a, is a very dangerous thing. And, and all it takes is for you know, we've, we, we're lucky we have some great leaders that are leading that training that are going to keep those standards high and understand how important that is. Unfortunately, it takes one week leader, you know, to, to go in there and uh, uh, fold, fold to the political pressure and, uh, and standards drop. And the world is, uh, that darkness continues to spread, particularly with that, that conversation that we open this with. As darkness spreads throughout the world, we need our SEAL teams and special operators and infantry units to perform at the highest levels possible to go and, and be able to close with and destroy that enemy. Indeed. Speaking of destroying the enemy, next question is, how do you deal with rules of engagement? Are they necessary? Did they inhibit you? This is a question we get all the time, and people want to talk about rules of engagement. You know, everyone... There's always complaints. Guys, you come back from the battlefield, like, the rules of engagement are so stringent. And these are different wars we're fighting. These are counterinsurgency wars. And oftentimes people use the term civilian casualties uh, in a way that that's, you know, they're talking about innocent civilians. But what they don't realize is that everyone we're fighting is a civilian. None of them are uniformed members of, of an opposing military. They blend into the populace. They act like they're normal people. They hide amongst the, the people. Often, sometimes use them as human shields, and then they're shooting at you and shooting RPGs or, or, or uh, machine guns at you, and they maneuver. So it, it's a very challenging environment. Um, but the rules of engagement really don't change. Uh, the rules of engagement are pretty clear. And uh, they're, uh, you observe a, a hostile act, bad guys shooting at you or shooting at friendlies, or a ho- you you observe hostile intent, meaning that, and that's where it becomes a little more gray area to say, okay, was this was that person acting in a manner that had a reasonable certainty of hostile intent? And so uh, it's it's a judgment call uh, up to uh, up to the, the troops on the battlefield, and and those rules of engagement don't change; they're they're always the same. I think what changes is is leaders. Leaders change, and there's some leaders that are willing to delegate that down to the lowest level troopers, trust in their guys, train them, make it make them understand um, just how important it is to make sure uh, you know that that uh, that they're operating within that rules of engagement, that they are you know not uh, accidentally engaging some innocent person and causing you know collateral damage that they didn't mean to. So, uh, and there's some leaders that won't delegate that and keep it tight 
and and want to really scrutinize guys for making the call. I think the best way uh, for us, we, this was incredibly important. People need to understand how you know our troops are put in a tough position because we know that anything we do in today's world with, with social media, with news, you know, news cycles, could be absolute front page headline news uh, in in a heartbeat, and uh, and those can have massive catastrophic effect on on the entire you know strategy strategic. yeah the strategic uh, mission so this is uh this is something that we have to deal with regularly and uh, and if a, a guy thought of, uh, you know he he thought he saw someone digging in the road and there were an ied layer and and uh, he, he decided to pull the trigger on on someone that he thought was an ied layer and it turns out it's not we get investigated for that we it becomes a big deal and and that shooter our, our u.s serviceman who you know, or, or, or woman who engaged uh is potentially looking at going to prison for uh, you know for something like that so it's a big deal if they violated the rules of engagement one of the ways that uh jocko did an amazing job of this and and you know one of our four principles our laws of combat that we talk about is simple and one of the ways that he did this for us was you know, all this lawyer speak of reasonable certainty of hostile intent and all these things, he would stand up before we rolled out the gate every time, every single operation, and say, if you have to pull the trigger, you better make sure the guy you're killing is bad. Simple. Everyone understood that. And it, it we had total faith and trust in our guys to do that. And I'm so proud of that, that they were able to execute with tremendous discipline. And uh, and minimize collateral damage in in a way that other units couldn't, you know, in, in the way we did that. So, uh, I think uh, rules of engagement are necessary. People have to understand them, and it's really whether or not uh, you it's delegated down is entirely up to a leader. Yeah, and you could see the uh, the, the the situation that led up to Milai, which we did a couple podcasts ago. The the rules of engagement were the the way that they were briefed. It wasn't hey, make sure the people that you're killing are bad. It was everyone in this area is hostile. Everyone has been warned if they're that to leave. So everyone you see is either Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizer. Kill them. And there's some scrutiny about whether they said kill them or not because that, that, that was a pretty simple, clear message. But, you know, the difference in that, the way that the rules of engagement were briefed, were definitely a a a cause, one of the causes for the Milai massacre happening. It's it's an awful situation. Rules of engagement. All right. Next question is probably pretty quick, but how often would guys take shots in their body armor or helmet? All the time. This happened all the time. And uh, when we were in that urban combat, in sustained combat, day after day after day, both for, for us in Charlie Platoon and in, in our, our sister platoon, Delta Platoon, that was operating on the other side of the city, it was just, this happened regularly. I mean, we had guys... Uh, you know, on patrol with a camelback, you know, and, the, you know, the camelback's got is, is a water bladder on the back. You wear the backpack. It's got the little hose tube that you can you can drink water on on, on the move. Guys, no, no water in his backpack. Realize later, round went through it. I mean, you're talking inches away, you know, from his back. We had multiple guys shot in the plates, uh, front plate, back plate. 
um, and guy, uh, one, one of our guys peeking up over the rooftop during a big gunfight, bam, takes, takes, uh, all of a sudden he felt like, felt like somebody punched him in the face and, uh, kind of falls back down below the roof and kind of gets up wondering what's happening and takes off his helmet, looks at his helmet, realizes he's been shot in his night vision mount, uh, which meant that that round came in directly, you know, at his face, hit, hit his, hit his night vision mount and ricocheted up. Had it hit just, you know, a millimeters lower, it would have right. taken his head off. So that happened all the time. And, and I, I, I'm sure, Jocko, you remember this many times. I would, we'd, we'd put, come back from an op, park our Humvees. I'd walk in the door. I was, was going to check in with Jocko, let him know, you know, what, what, what we, what happened out there, what's going on, you know, what's, what's happening, you know, uh, now, you know, are there other ops we need to get reloaded for things to think about walking in his office you know, and, First thing I would generally say was, God is a frog man. God's a frog man. He's looking out for us. I don't know how we made it out of that without losing guys. Or you know, this was so many close calls, uh, and it was just a, a constant thing all the time. Wear your body armor. Wear your helmet. Yeah, we we always said, guys, armor. on our and you've you've talked about this on the podcast before, but my first appointment, we would have guys that would wear body armor that was like, like. Six inches by yeah, six inches. Minimalistic body Tiny armor. Tiny little body armor. Nobody, uh, you know, and, and in Ramadi, getting in those kind of gunfights, everyone was like, hey, can we get a little bigger place? <laughs> <laughs> uh, some guys wanted to cut their helmets into half shells before we got there. After we got there, it was like, nope, not I'm not it. cutting my helmet. Uh, I, I, some of the army guys, get a little guys more too, ballistic? Some of the army guys, they would have the full, they look like almost like knights. The crotch protector. Yeah, the crotch protector, yeah. the collars, the arm sleeves, the side sappy plates, they they were covered up good on them because they were, uh, you know, taking real risks out there. So, yeah, but, you know, Jody Middick and I, when he was on here, we had a little conversation about body armor. They did not and expected to be in a certain spot. They weren't there. They didn't have body armor helmets on. And, he, you know, he's sitting here saying, I wish I would have had them. So, wear your body armor, wear your helmet all the time. Next one, Leif. We truly appreciate your father's work here in Texas. Would you ever consider a career in politics? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, there's uh, just to, so everybody understands, uh, my dad is a, a, a U.S. congressman now. Uh, he's a freshman U.S. congressman from uh, Texas, District 36 in Southeast Texas, and uh, I'm very proud of him. He. Retired after a, a career as a as a small town dentist, uh, you know, business, uh, self employed business, former owner. army and air force, right? army army and air force veteran, and uh, he was fed up with Washington and didn't like the options that he saw, uh, you know, that he knew were going to be running for that seat, and he said, you know what, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, I'm going to go up there, I'm trying to make a difference, and I we need more people like that in Washington. Dad is my dad is there to make a difference and only to make a difference. He doesn't care about a career. He doesn't care about being there for decades and decades and decades. You know, he's uh, he's retired and he'd rather be fishing, hanging out with his grandkids, and uh, and hunting. But uh, he would. But he cares about there. the country. He cares about the country, and he is sacrificing to be there uh, and to lead. And I'm and I'm damn proud of the job that he's doing uh, and stepping up. Would I consider a career in politics? Uh, I can't imagine anything to be more miserable than that. Uh, you know what? On the other hand, when I look at our nation, just as my dad you know, has, uh, uh, has has felt you know called to do that, to step up, to lead, you know, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? So somebody has got to step up. Somebody's got to lead. And I think when you look at the direction of our country right now and the the, the political climate. And, and all that's going on, you know, in this electoral cycle, um, would I do that? Maybe. 
I just might be able to be talked into it. Uh, we shall see. What about you, Jocko? Get some. What, uh, I mean, we got we got the bumper stickers. <laughs> Jocko, Jocko 2016. 2016. Uh, you know, that. go Charles. I think I would be running as, if I was to run for political office, I would run as um, dictator <laughs> and supreme ruler of of America. And that's what that's what I would do. We we could we could bring back some of the Roman rule tri, triumvirate. Yeah. So me, you, and Echo, we could just take take over. Uh, I don't know if I have the stomach for politics. I I really don't like the political arena too much, and not sure it's something I would ever ever have the desire to do. You know, I guess that's my that's where I sit. Maybe when I was seventy years old. Um. Yeah, people people have asked me too. You know, like, hey, if you were president, what would you do? And, you know, about the situation with Iran, you know, and their development of nuclear weapons, or China getting, you know, it, it making big moves in the South China Sea, or Russia pushing the envelope and uh, and and uh, kind of thumbing their noses at us. And often I've told them that if, if I were president, I would immediately uh, nominate Jocko Willink as Secretary of Defense. We would change Secretary of Defense to the previous title of Secretary of War, and uh, and I think those problems would would disappear immediately. Um, I think if if I was president, it'd be very my my policy would be pretty simple. My policy would be kick ass. That's what we would do. Economic. What can you? What's your economic plan, Jocko? Kick ass. What's your? What would you do with this situation over here in the uh, Middle East? Oh, there. Oh, yeah. What we're gonna do there is we're gonna kick ass. <laughs> what about the drug problem that we got coming in through the borders? Oh, the the drug cartel. Yeah, we're gonna kick ass on that. So that that's my policy. I so, like it. So this is why I probably wouldn't be the best politician in the world. <laughs> is that kind of like BTF. Yeah. Same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Next question. Can you give us details of the muster? So for those of you who don't know, uh, we're doing an event in San Diego, California. Leif Babbitt and I. And you know what? Echo Charles is going to be there. Maybe. going to be there in the sidelines. He's going to be signing t-shirts and cutting videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing an event October 20th, 20th and 21st. And what it is, it is a deep dive into combat leadership what combat leadership is all about how to apply combat leadership to your business to your life how to get out there lead and win the reason we're doing this is as you know Leif and I've been doing this this gig for the past five years working with a bunch of different companies we wrote the book extreme ownership it's very popular and we get a lot of requests and we've you know we, we we've Honestly, we're in a lot of demand, and people want us to come and work with a bunch of different companies. We can't always do it. We've actually had to raise our prices so that we could kind of slow down a little bit, slow down the demand. But when we're doing that, that means we're we're cutting a lot of people out, you know. And I'm a, I'm a man of the people, <laughs> and I want to support the working man. So how can we get something where where regular people can come? Maybe they don't have. Maybe their company doesn't support bringing us out, or it's too expensive for us to come out. Well, how about you send two or three of the critical leaders out there? We spend a day and a half getting deep, working, working through the things that we've learned, going face to face with people and explaining, explaining things to them, how to deal with it. I, this is not one of the things. This is not going to be. This is not going to be a 
a feel-good seminar. This isn't going to be, hey, we're here to pump you up. and that That's not what we're doing. We're here to educate. We're here to talk about leadership. We're going to learn, too. It's going to be great to have a bunch of people in leadership positions that we can talk to, that we can communicate, that we can learn from situations that they've been in. You know, we get... We, when I put out that you were coming back on the podcast, we get hundreds and hundreds of questions. I get thousands of questions. I have on the pod on the podcast question bank. It's eighty two pages long, eighty two pages worth of questions. Is what I have right now. I'm a, I'm answering five or six questions a podcast. So let's get people that want to come out, want to get face to face with Leif and I, and learn about leadership. Learn what we've learned. And how to apply it in business and life. That's what that's what we're doing with the muster. It's important to say too. This this is not a tour. You know, we're not, we're not going to take this from city to city to city to city. This is uh, we're going to have one muster. This is an annual event. You know, maybe at some point we'll expand to in one West Coast, one East Coast. That's that's a maybe. You know, right now we're going to do we're going to do one uh, one muster annual event, and this is for leaders. Whether you're whether you're a leader, follower, anyone who wants to better themselves, to dive deep into these issues of leadership, of teamwork, of extreme ownership, of the laws of combat and how to apply them, this is for you. You know, come to San Diego, join us. We're looking forward to diving deep into those issues, helping you solve some challenges to lead and win. Boom. Come out to the muster. There's a there's a there's a website for it. And we'll tweet it out. Go to echelonfront.com. You can find it on there. That's our company. So you can go check that out. We're looking forward to uh, the people that want to come out, come and get some. Now, the reason that Leif was out here with me here in San Diego was for a series of events to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of August 2nd, 2006, which is the day that Mark Allen Lee, who was the first SEAL killed in Iraq, was killed in Ramadi, and also the day where Ryan Job, otherwise known as Biggles, was gravely wounded, shot in the face in the wounds that ultimately led to his death as well. This particular events were focused on on Mark in, in an event to support a charity organization that his mom runs called America's Mighty Warriors. And at one of those events, I was uh, honored to give a speech from my perspective on Mark. And here it is. Ten years. Ten years is a long time. A decade. And in many ways it seems so far in the past. In some ways it doesn't seem so far away at all. It isn't hard to remember being deployed in Ramadi, Iraq in the summer of 2006. And yes, sometimes that seems like a distant place. 
a long time ago. And yet, sometimes it feels like we were just there yesterday. The sweltering heat, the dust, the danger, the crystal clear focus on our mission. When we had but one purpose in our lives, to close with and destroy an evil enemy bent on destroying us and our way of life. And it doesn't take much for the mind to return there, to regain that mindset, to get into the combat mode and remember. Remember the operations out in the city. Remember the tracer rounds in the night sky, explosions shaking the earth, the weight of body armor and weapons and gear on our shoulders. Remember the stress and the violence and the sweat and the blood. And remember the evil, the pure evil that infected the city and committed savage, vile, and disgusting acts of mortal sin, murder, rape, and torture. And inside that dark world, a world ripped apart by war, a world where sometimes humanity seemed all but lost, That is where we got to see and experience the polar opposite, the counter to all that darkness. Against that backdrop of evil, we young men, we band of brothers, we got to witness light and life and love so strong that it makes the darkness fade and makes the evil cower and hide its wretched face. Evil bows down when it sees the bond we developed with the soldiers and marines we fought alongside. Evil cannot contest the bond we formed with our brother seals with whom we had become so close that there is no stronger force in the world, nothing more powerful, nothing more meaningful than knowing that these men, these frogmen, that we would do anything for each other. We saw powerful acts of heroism and courage on an almost daily basis, which reassured us solemnly That good would triumph over evil. And amongst all that glory, there were a few men, the true heroes, the ones that rose above the rest of us to symbolize and personify courage and faith and selflessness and love. Mark Allen Lee was one of those rare men, one of those heroes, one of the few men in my life that I literally describe as a saint. That is who Mark was, a mighty warrior 
whose ferocity in combat was perfectly balanced by faith and humor and compassion. A man that left his mark on everyone that he met. A mark of happiness and positivity and of humility and of joy. A man whose love for his family and friends was so unbounded and so limitless that you could actually feel it emanating from his heart. And now he has left his mark on the world. Mark Lee. Mark Allen Lee. When faced with fear, who else could bring a smile? When faced with sadness, who else could bring laughter? When faced with hate, who else could bring love? And when faced with death, who else could stand and say, Take me, Lord, not my brothers. I will be their shield now from death. Take me and let them live on. And that is what Mark did. Full of youth and energy and courage and humor. And full of love. He stood. He stood against evil and he stood against death and he gave his life for his brothers. And for our freedom. On August 2nd, 2006, in Al-Ramadi, Iraq. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. And in those ten years, think of all that has happened in our lives. Big events like marriages, children born, birthdays, new houses, new jobs, new careers. And small events. A morning surf session. Lunch with your buddies. A weekend in the mountains. A cold iced tea on a hot summer's day. Smile, a laugh, life, joy, happiness. And every moment of that happiness is a gift. A gift. A gift given to us by Mark, who sacrificed everything for us. 
who gave up his own precious smile so we could all have ours. Now I can tell you without a shred of doubt that on this day today Mark would not want tears. He would not want sadness. He would not want sorrow. He would want smiles and laughter and joy because that was his gift to us. Every smile. Every laugh. Every ounce of life and love is all a gift from a warrior, a friend, a comedian, a son, a brother, a hero, a saint. And what do we owe Mark? For Mark, each and every one of us must relish the gift that he gave to us and cherish each and every day while remembering the incredible man that gave us this gift of life. And to the seals that are listening, the frogmen, you owe Mark what we owe all our fallen brothers, the grave commitment to carry the fire, to hold the torch and hold it high. To take the fight to the enemy every chance you get without mercy and without remorse. Until they are vanquished. And there is peace. Thank you, Mark. We will never forget you. God bless Mark's family. God bless the teams. God bless America. And God bless Mark Alan Lee. When I think that's all we've got for tonight. And I want to thank everybody that's out there that's listening. Thank you for remembering. And that's one of the things that we do here. Remember. I want to thank Leif for coming on. We've been we've been tied into so many things. And you were pointing that out to me the other day, Leif. We've been tied into so many different things and so many far-reaching 
stories that we've been a part of. And I thank you for coming on here and helping to share some of these stories with uh, with me for everyone to hear. So Thanks everyone, for having me. Everyone can remember. Those of you that are out there and you want to keep listening and you want to keep remembering, Echo. How can they support this? Help me out here. Red Cluster. Red Star Cluster. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Leaf. Um, Thanks for having me, Echo. We didn't talk much about working out or, you know, that kind of stuff, but... If you're into supplements, even if you're not into supplements, my opinion, go to onit.com slash Jocko, get Onit supplements. That'll help you out a lot. And 10% off. So we said it a bunch of times, but I can't, I kind of can't say it enough, really, as far as benefits. It'll put you ahead for sure. So yeah, get 10% off that. Um, if you want to support with the Amazon situation, the one where you, Go to the website, click on the Amazon link, you know, before you do your shopping. Um, that's a good way to do it. Uh, if you have a hard time remembering, we have the Trooper tool, which is good. It, Brady. Yeah, Brady Bull came through on that one. Um, it's a thing you go, it, there's a link on the website. It's called the Trooper tool. You click on it. Uh, it takes you to the page. You click on it. You say yes. That's it. It puts a little thing, so it automatically um, directs you to, to the Amazon wallet. Uh, it adds the affiliate link so you you support the podcast um you don't have to go through the websites anymore so that's a good one um yeah and subscribe to the podcast on itunes that's a good one huh and where you, there's other places to subscribe to it yeah sure youtube google google play by the way yeah and stitcher too stitcher. if you're into that itunes i think is the main one but hey man stitcher's dope as well google play too it's on there. Um, so, yeah. And go to the YouTube channel. I was going to re- release a video today. It was like a, a outtake or whatever. But what? <laughs> You're protesting? I was, too, I was too fired up. Yeah, man. I was too fired up with other stuff. I'll post it tonight. It'll awesome. be good. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's an out, what is it? Outtake video? Yeah, it's like one was the... the, the which now, you see what makes do? me nervous about this is I believe in decentralized command. All right? Leif can attest to that, right? For sure. I I totally believe in decentralized command. But now I'm starting to deal with a possible trust scenario here. It requires trust and confidence. (laughs) That's for sure. What if my brother Echo Charles... I haven't seen it. So this is the unauthorized outtakes. Yeah. So here, and we're going to ease into this whole thing. So there's one, and this is just off the top of my head, where I was telling you about my, my children's book idea. Okay, yeah. You're going to make... Okay. It's a good idea. Okay. Anyway. That was the fish in the water. I, I actually remember right now. It just hit me, right? <laughs> I, I'm okay with it. I was just... Uh, I was a little concerned that he, he might have, uh, you know, a rendition of me and you singing We Are the World. Yes. Yes. Which Luckily, I don't think we hit record yet. We don't want yeah, that. We don't uh, want that on the internet. I have when, it on my iPhone. When Leif and I were the put the headphones on and the mics in front of us and we were standing here looking at each other and it, it felt very much like if you were alive during the 80s. They did the We Are the World video, and, and for some reason, that just hit us both at the same time. We, we busted out. busted out. We Are the World. <laughs> Mark Lee would have been proud. He, sure. he would have indeed. Yeah. I was proud, for sure. And, and yeah, so the YouTube videos, I, I told you guys last time, Echo needs motivation 
he's you know he's he's a, just a laid back guy, and so we need to motivate him. And he the, his excuse was, well, you know, there's not that many subscribers on on YouTube. No, no big deal. Yeah. That, doesn't, that doesn't sound like extreme ownership. Why should why should I be making <laughs> I videos? I never said that. That's the thing. All right, and so cool. Th- not to get too technical, it's not. I don't need motivation. I need incentive. Oh, so tech, they're just they're different. Okay, I don't want to get into a big thing. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to either. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so that's it. Thank you. Yeah, or the jo- uh, the Jocko store is a good one. You know, get a shirt if you like those, um, and a bumper sticker, coffee oh, mug, whatever. If you, if you like those. I forgot about the t-shirts in the store, the Jocko store. Yeah, that's a good one, man. But yeah, if you, if like, you them. like them, yeah. If you don't like them, don't get them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm seeing we, a lot of those on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People awesome. Cranking pictures we, of. Uh, we we yeah. do dig that, but I'll tell you, if should we just say to stop asking us for like a donation page? No, we shouldn't say that. Okay, but and well, to, don't ask no. for Patreon. 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 Yeah, don't Patreon. Ask for, we're not Patreon. gonna do it. Yeah, probably not going to do We're not going to do it. If you yeah. want to donate, you can donate through P- PayPal. Yeah, if you can, that's good. And that's cool. It but is It is cool to see those because it's like 434, you know? Yeah, because that's, that's, cool. that's, cool, that's what the cool kids do. Yep. They donate $4.34 a month yeah. to keep them up and engaged and up before <laughs> the enemy. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. Yeah, by the way, sleep deprivation, I'm on it right now because Leif and I were out late last night and we were up very early this morning to work out and then go surfing. That's right. We Good were all, we, we were work and play on this trip. Uh, discipline you know what I have to say about freedom. that? Good. <laughs> exactly. Nope. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Thanks. But yeah, those are the ways. Okay. Good. And then uh, also, if you want, you know, believe it or not, this guy sitting here with me, Leif Babin. Yeah. I know he and I might not look like the smartest people in the world, and we might actually not be the smartest people in the world, but we did write a book. People... People look at me and probably think I can't spell my name or read, much less write a book. But uh, we did write a book. Uh, the books continue to do really well. And you know, if, you, if you're interested in, if you're interested in the book, if you're interested in the, the concepts that Jocko talks about, the stuff that we just talked about and we talked about in uh, episode 11 of the Jocko podcast, uh, get the book and dive into that stuff deep. Talk about extreme ownership. Talk about the laws of combat and how they apply. We use the combat scenarios. We talk about the principle and we talk about how it applied to different businesses and organizations that we work with over the years. It's uh, something that, for us, our mission was to write a book that could be useful for leaders as a reference. It, 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 a, a good read that uh, that people can, can get into and have some exciting stories that, that are applicable, but, but also is a useful reference for uh, for leaders to highlight, underline, tab, refer to regularly, you know, dog ear pages, and 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 as we've received that kind of feedback, and people post uh, messages on on social media about of uh, their their books and the dog ear pages and the tabs or the highlights, and the feedback we've received has been tremendous, and and uh, if we've done that and uh, and, and accomplished that for those leaders as as that useful reference that has helped them be better leaders, better followers, better team members, accomplish their mission and win then we've succeeded in our mission. I'll tell you what fires me up too. I, I, I love seeing that. I love seeing when people are like, um, they're showing a, they, cause I post pictures of the books that I do on the podcast and they're all, they're all notes and they're all that stuff. Cause I'm getting ready. I, I dive deep. And so people do that to our book. And like you said, that's awesome. And we love signing books that have massive, uh, the other cool thing. There's two other cool things. They're kind of related. One of them is when people, send a picture of a stack of books and they're like issuing these to my teams today. We're going to get it on. That's awesome. And there's something else that happens. That's a little bit 
It might be more awesome. It might be the same awesome, but it's definitely awesome. And that's when they're when they're giving the book to their boss, right? <laughs> and there's a, and somebody somebody hit us up the other day and like, you know, how do I give this book to my boss? And and I think Leif wrote, you know, something along the lines of, hey, it's it's a great it's a great thing to give to your boss. And when you do it, say, hey, man, I learned. You know, you don't want to say. You, you, the, you thing you, the thing you don't want to do is say, you need to get some extreme ownership, no. so I'm giving this to you as a hint. No, what you want to say is, ah, oh, I got so much out of this book, and I'm going to turn, you know, I look forward to applying what I learned. I just want, if you see a change in attitude, I want you to know where it's coming from. Do something like that. Be tactical. Well, interestingly enough, I, ironically, looking at someone and saying, you need extreme ownership is not extreme ownership, right? Because yeah. extreme ownership is about you, mm-hmm. and you got to control that relationship. You got to build that relationship. So if you feel like the boss uh, needs a little extreme ownership, then you got to own that. Yeah, and you got to lead up the chain of command, which is one of the chapters you wrote about. And it's it's cool too. You know, we're out here obviously this weekend. We saw a lot of our of our SEAL buddies, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation with I don't think there's three or four of us standing in a circle, but they were talking about the book and. You know, it's it's guys that were junior to us at the time, and now they're saying, hey, you know, this is awesome. I'm getting a lot out of it. And then guys that are senior to us with the, I wish I would have had this book. <laughs> and you know what I say? I do, too. I do, too. I wish I would have had this book. I mean, it's just like a little step up to just know and be able to read. and It just gives you that insight. And so it's awesome. We appreciate uh, appreciate that. Appreciate everyone giving us the, the the solid feedback. Killer. And you got anything else, Leif? That's all I got. Thanks for having me on. Good to be on with you guys again. Always. Always. Looking forward to the next time. Echo Charles, closing comments. Plinko? No, Plinko. Leif does sound like Batman. That's all. <laughs> The Texas Batman. Yep. The Texas La- Batman. Life Babin. Oh, I actually God. never heard that. I never heard that until uh, the audiobook. You, you never heard the Texas Batman? Yeah, Jocko and I actually, we, we read the audiobook. Right. James Earl Jones uh, wasn't available, so we read it ourselves. <laughs> yep. I would I would have I would have given it up for if James Earl Jones had, uh, Might have had done, done that. But we read it ourselves, and uh, that's the first time I started hearing that. People were like, you sound like Texas Batman or <laughs> Southern <laughs> Batman. I was like. What are you talking about? Yeah, you and know, you, I don't even and like. Then, I don't and, even like. And comic then you books. press play, and you said, yeah. "Oh, dang, man. I like that man." Yep. <laughs> you know what? One too many immediate action drills over the years. I guess yeah. screaming out some commands, or, or maybe it was when I lost my cool. We talked <laughs> about. I should have done less of that. Blew your voice out. Awesome. Well, as always. If anybody out there wants to continue this conversation, we're all up on the interwebs, Twitter, the Facebooky. Instagram. Echo is at Echo Charles. Leif is at Leif Babin. And I am at Jocko Willink. And to all those folks out there in uniform, those in the military, on the front lines, in the war against evil, those police on the thin blue line fighting criminals and terror here at home and the firefighters that run towards the danger to protect us in our homes thanks to you all for everything that you do and the rest of the troopers out there in the world moving forward stepping up 
taking charge in business, in education, in healthcare, buying, selling, building, creating, making the most of this gift. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. And thanks for grabbing life by the horns. Going out there aggressively every day. And getting after it. So, until next time, this is Leif, Echo, and Jocko.